Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore. Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. You know, what sums up Resident Evil better than disabling cameras and knocking down doors? Yeah, online games don't have nick mode. A homicidal computer, that's not Resident Evil. He's got an, he's got, he's got a nice flashbang biggest fan of Resident Evil in the world you, you know you'll struggle to find a bigger fan than I am of the series let me get out of rescue kids what's going on with this yeah because when they first revealed that trailer it's like why do they look alive they're just like rawr 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 Welcome to episode 64 of the Resident Evil podcast. Cleaning up the mold after a recent boat crash while steadily influencing the US presidential election with unsolicited emails. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, where it's Shark Week every week. Let's see who's joining us today. He's been involved in recent medical trials and now lives with extracted hormones from petrified teenagers. It stars Tyrant. Thank you, and hello. Just like the real things, he's been the main antagonist of the RE community for years. It's Romby. Hi. <laughs> Are you a voice actor in Resident Evil Village? Brace yourself for email after email from a Mr. P. Freshwater. <laughs> it's George Trevor. <laughs> it's so. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> And our very special guest today, often described as a biohazard legend, but always described as a freak. It's CVX Freak. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much. This is for everyone who's unaware. CVX Freak, of course, is Alex, who is preparing a book. And that will actually be our main focal point for the podcast today. We will, of course, be looking at all the latest news, site news, and a sub-description discussion on the latest trailer from Tokyo Game Show concerning Resident Evil Village. But the main focal point is an interview with Resident Evil legend Alex, a.k.a. CVX Freak. And he's so cool, he's decided to have a go at Neptune's Biohazard Quiz as well. So without further ado, let's start with the news. First bit of news, we can't ignore it, but we are going to have a main sub-discussion on it, that the uh, latest trailer for Resident Evil 8 slash Village was released at Tokyo Game Show to great fanfare. We got our first extended look at the kind of initial trailer and a few shots, as well as an interview with the developers and producers before that main reveal. So we'll come back onto that in a second. So I don't think we've forgotten about it, but yeah, it, it's coming along. A new date has been set as winter for the next update. So um, I think Capcom are trying to be a, a bit less specific about when they're going to give their updates, which is probably sensible after the perhaps unnecessary criticism they got for the lack of update in August.
The next bit of news as part of that, Resident Evil 25th anniversary is coming next year, so everyone's excited, and we got some nice new artwork, which generated some discussion, didn't it, Stars Tyrant? Yeah, it's it's less of a 25-year celebration and more of just an RE engine celebration, for better or worse. <laughs> Well, you know, without being too critical, it seems strange that they're using artwork, for example, of Chris in Resident Evil 7, and I wouldn't necessarily say that's the Chris you would want to represent your 25 years with, but it is what it is, unfortunately. It does feel like it's Capcom almost trying to ram down our throats the fact that, you know, Resident Evil 3 is now the remake, Resident Evil 2 is now the remake, this is Resident Evil. It's almost like they're trying to brush the past under the carpet, and I don't like that, and I don't want to be too critical, and the remakes and the people associated with the remakes, the actors and the, and the, the producers of developers have done a wonderful job. We're, we're still talking about this series because it has been progressed in this way and, and broadened out to a wider audience. But, you know, it couldn't have harmed for that artwork to have been a mix of the past and, and the present. Where was I, Thompson? <laughs> Why is Jack there and, like, how big he is? And I think, and Alex will probably confirm this for me, because they talk about it in the Tokyo stream. They were like, even the guy that was hosting the first one said, why is Jack there? I mean, it's. I think it's worth remembering that there was an artwork for the 20th anniversary, which honestly to me was not that long ago. It's been, a, for me, a rather short five years in a lot of ways. And I agree that the direction of the artwork, maybe its actual design isn't so great, but I do think it was appropriate to kind of use that RE Engine photogrammetry look to, to design. I mean, could they have put in more effort? I think so. If anything, I'm wondering why Carlos isn't there. I felt like he earned a spot. He has like 10 times the amount of screen time and playtime that Ada did in RE2. So it's really fascinating how they didn't put Carlos in there. The same thing with, with Ada as well. Everyone else is kind of like a profile kind of thing. And then she's just kind of floating there in the side of the shot is slightly weird too. It's like she's the one kind of out of place. It's almost like someone went, oh, we need to Ada in here. Uh, this is the best we've got. And just slapped her to the side, floating in full space. I did get in discussion with Jeremy Pryor from WayForward online, and he and I disagreed about the focus point of the thing, but he did make a valid point, which is if Capcom is planning on putting these games, so 7, 2, 3, and releasing them on the next-gen consoles again, this artwork, if it's going to be a collection, would make a very good sense for that collection. Um, <laughs> so it could be a case of they were planning on putting those games together in a pack that would be a very good artwork for it, which is, minus Carlos, a, a good good point. I always assumed... And I don't know this for sure, but they're probably going to at least um, offer next-gen upgrades that you get for free. Because a lot of the the upgrades that you can get through next-gen consoles, I think they're already available on PC. So it's just a simple matter of releasing uh, the optimization patches so they get either their, I don't know, their 120 frames per second or the 4K resolution. I don't know if that would warrant them actually re-releasing the games, but, you know, it's Capcom, so... It's, it's coming. Them. It depends on how much effort they put in. I mean, so if you look at something like Devil May Cry 5, the reason they're doing the special editions is obviously increasing number count, um, adding new visual effects that they couldn't do on previous consoles, and that's not clearly the PC version, that's just content to the point where the PC community are upset that they're not getting the same stuff that the consoles are. So yeah, it'd be interesting. It could go either way, I, I totally agree. Next bit of news, um, if everyone can just excuse me whilst I climb up onto my soapbox. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens when leaks happen. And obviously, this wasn't an internal leak. This was a major leak by Netflix. But generally speaking, TGS was a bit of a damp squid when it came to new information. But if everyone can just imagine, imagine how wonderful it would have been to have then suddenly had that announcement and no one knew about it. The community would have lit up and it would have been, oh, my God, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Instead, we all kind of had it 24 hours earlier. Not Capcom's fault. In any event, we uh, had the announcement of the Resident Evil series, Infinite Darkness, and we got a nice little trailer. Teaser trailer, I think, is probably the best term to show, and it brings back everyone's favourite power couple, Leon and Claire, as they are investigating a new, looks-to-be T-virus outbreak, somewhere along the lines. We've got the dark, atmospheric setting... And it looks like a kind of like a log cabin, doesn't it? And uh, Leon's looking very dapper in his suit, and Claire's looking quite cool, actually. Uh, perhaps inspired by a cosplayer, who knows? But the outfit—I've been told it's the remake two jacket, but otherwise he's looking a bit like her Revelations outfit. I thought which was quite cool. And there's not there wasn't a huge amount to see in the trailer. Just a couple of zombies looking pretty cool, and um, some guns firing, and a new character who Leon seemed quite bemused by. I think is probably the best term. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of a trailer. Was it for Damnation when we saw Leon staring across at uh, another guy, and everyone was, "Is it Ark? Is he?" <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always Ark. <laughs> yeah. Um, my one concern about this, I've got to say, I don't know if you guys were feeling this, is so if you'd got a trailer for Vendetta and you just had that scene when Chris and, and his team are investigating like Spencer-esque type mansion, which was my favourite part of uh, Vendetta. You know, that would give you a very, very a sort of artificial feeling of, of what the theme of the yes. film is all about. And I'm a bit concerned by this, is that Capcom do kind of tease us with these very atmospheric, very much survival horror themed trailers, but then the actual CGI film that we get, that will be kind of a very atmospheric slow paced scene in the film but the rest of the film will be you know will, will, will we call of duty so yeah i don't want to be too kind of negative on it i hope it stays with that theme obviously the whole pace of the film can't be like that but i'd like to think that that's the general theme is that survival horror and that's not just going to be a very isolated like, like we got with vendetta which it very much was just to add to your concerns though george the the is the vendetta team that is making uh, infinite darkness so yeah. we'll see how it goes. But this is a Netflix uh, TV show, so it's going to be kind of serialised, which is a new direction for the series, if you like. We've never seen anything quite like this, uh, which gives the opportunity, I suppose, for individual storylines within episodes, but perhaps an overriding arch you know, story narrative that could make it a bit more rewarding, perhaps, in, in rather watching uh, a two-hour movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it'll be yeah. it'll be a longer runtime for sure. And I think the Resident Evil CG films have always been a bit on the short side. Like you can tell they're running against their their time allotment, so they usually wrap things up very quickly. So I hope that the series gives them a chance to flesh things out more. And hopefully we get more than one season. I think that would be great. Absolutely, yeah. People are hopeful for cameos from other characters, but I don't know, Sean, what's been your views on Infinite Darkness? What are you hoping to get out of this? I mean, obviously, we've seen so little of it, and I'm quite curious as to who the the new face is, but I won't lie that it is um, the Vendetta team is a worry, because I really didn't gel with Vendetta at all, unfortunately. I know one of the co-founders of the, the team that actually did the animation for Vendetta is on board with his own new company, but I don't think it's the same writer or the same story writer. It might be a different crew in general. 
So I don't know. I would say it's exactly the same people as Vendetta. It's reassuring then, to be honest. I remember having a conversation with you, Alex. I don't know if it was around the time of Vendetta, because it, it, it probably would have been when we were doing the uh, Armour interview. And we were talking about the, the fans that we kind of associate with, you know, sort of in North America and Europe. Uh, can take the series quite seriously. And I remember there were comments about some of the sort of explosions that happened near Leon that, you know, didn't really cause him any damage. And we were just talking about how the -the over-the-top nature of Vendetta. And I I recall you you saying that, if I understood you correct, if you remember this, but you were mentioning how in Japan they don't necessarily take that as seriously and they're more about the spectacle and that it wouldn't kind of come into the, the Resident Evil Japanese fans' kind of psyche to think, well, hang on a minute, was that, you know, was that a realistic... A conclusion to that to that action scene in terms of you know leon didn't come under much damage or you know injury due to that massive explosion you know, that truck flip, flipping through the air yeah that's that's exactly what a lot of people here tend to expect i think if there's too much realism in the creative material that doesn't seem to resonate as well with people people kind of want exaggerated out of this world scenery and expressions and i think this is an interesting story for this podcast i've never actually spoken about this to anybody else but actually at the end of august i had dinner with the resident evil 7's director nakanishi-san and we were talking about some of the games that we had played recently and something that we had actually both played was The Last of Us Part Two, And we were both talking about, you know, how, you know, The Last of Us is very different from Resident Evil. And although we were both quite positive about the game in a lot of ways, something that we both agreed that didn't really jive with us as much was how realistic everything was to the point where it felt overproduced. Like if you're upgrading a weapon, every little animation with the gun and the character and whatnot is rendered on screen and you're just watching it. (laughs) If you're used to Resident Evil games, all of that happens instantly. And we were both in agreement that things like that look very realistic, but there's so much interactivity that as fans of more traditional Japanese games, you kind of get sucked out of it. And I think that kind of mindset exists with every creator in the Resident Evil series. I think nobody wants things to be so realistic that it stops being fun or it starts Mm. to feel very overproduced. So I, I think you're, you're going to have to get used to seeing a lot of exaggerated, very unrealistic portrayals in Resident Evil, whether it's, you know, someone not dying when they should, or what do they call this, this mechanic, the deus ex machina? Machina, yeah. Machina, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've always liked it, but I guess as games get more and more realistic, people's expectations start to shift a bit. Yeah, it's a balance that's really hard to find too because yeah, you're talking about a visual balance where things are starting to look more realistic and you're getting more detail and getting your character animation that you know, is mo-capped and performanced and nuanced to the point of like detail in the face, yet you want your scenarios and situations to be quite out of this world and kind of unrealistic to be entertaining. It's, yeah, it's a hard balance to get right. Alex, that was really, really good actually insight actually into the, the slight differences and nuances between um, different yeah. parts of the world. For the final time, resistance news. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. I, I'm going to I'm going to correct you on that, Nick. You were saying final time. I won't be surprised if what we were talking about before, if they end up porting the RE Engine games <laughs> to next gen, they'll just move resistance to PS5 and Xbox Series X. It'll be a, 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 you know the next level. It'll still be online. It'll be that. Don't count your chickens here. I I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced. For the final time, for the foreseeable future, resistance news. The final patch has been released. As confirmed by Al Yang, they are adding into the mix the any alpha zombies that populated Raccoon City with the help of 
Mr. Nemesis. Other bug patches have also been fixed, but yeah, that is seemingly it for the time being. But as uh, Rob just alluded to, there could be more. We could get that standalone resistance release or port or update for the next generation consoles. Has anyone had a had a go yet with the with with the new patch in force? I have not. No, not yet. I haven't played it for a few weeks now, but I think what really needs to happen to it for any chance of potential future is I think it needs to go free-to-play in all honesty. And that probably will result in, you know, the dreaded microtransactions and whatnot becoming more prevalent within the game, but I think it would be a lot more accessible to people there in that kind of capacity. I think tying it to Resident Evil 3 obviously, you know, helped boost the content of that release to some extent, but I think it did impair the audience a little bit. Well, as I said last episode when we were talking about Resistance, I think um, putting it as a separate installer and not having those cross elements like i said like having stuff that kind of unlock things in three and three unlock stuff in resistance which really would have brought an audi- more of an audience in because we talked about this so many people installed resident evil 3 and didn't play resistance they didn't even install it, or they tried it maybe once at best and didn't really even give it a shot i think that's part of it too a little bit short-sighted not to put those two things together i think what's the scene over in japan with resistance i have not noticed much of a community for that I mean, I haven't been looking, to be honest, but Japanese Resident Evil fans tweet things all the time about various subjects. Resistance hasn't really come up, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know if a game like Resistance necessarily appeals to to people here. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, what, what, what might make the average Japanese Resident Evil fan different from the average Western fan is that a lot of people here have attachments to certain characters. And I don't think the default cast of Resistance is particularly appealing to people here. Yeah. So maybe that kind of cooled people's perceptions in the game. Alex, can you remind me how well Outbreak did in Japan? Like, was it a... The first one did very well. And I think before RE4 came out, it was the best-selling Resident Evil game of that generation. I think PS2 fans were starved for a Resident Evil game after the series went to GameCube. So that did well, but File 2 came out and lost half of the user base. So I think... I would imagine Outbreak still has a lot of mindshare here in Japan as a single-player game rather than, than an online experience specifically. So I think that's it. You know, if, if, if Resistance had like a single-player portion, it would probably have had a different yes. impact for certain demographics yeah. and people. Yeah, my book actually talks about Outbreak and why its communication features are lack thereof. And there's a lot of cultural content involved in that. So I don't think it's changed that much since then. And I think Resistance probably had a lot of the same inertia in terms of gaming acceptance here. If you want to check out what our views are on Resistance, it's the previous podcast, and you can have a have a listen to that where we welcomed the Oracle Dragon as our special guest. Final bit of news. Resident Evil 5 Vinyl OST is coming out now from Laced Records. You can pre-order that, and it's coming in a nice kind of gold and orangey-red colour scheme, looking pretty swish, featuring three discs, 50 tracks, and it's coming in December. Anyone pre-ordered? I know, uh, Rob, you, you, you like to keep hold of these vinyls. Uh, I try. I missed I missed out on the Resident Evil 3 and 4 ones, unfortunately. By the time I went to go order, they had already sold out. Not only just the coloured ones, but even the blacks. I think there's still some blacks of three left. Um, they do sell out yeah, very quickly. They do. I have put a pre-order in for the five. 
Five's got a great soundtrack. It makes sense. Yes. Yeah, that's coming out in December, so keep an eye out for that. That does conclude the gaming news, but we have a bit of site news. So, as always, we'd first like to give a big shout-out to our new patrons, Peter McPherson and Sid Smith. Thank you so much for your generosity. It is greatly appreciated. Quickly go through some other site news, a bit of streaming news. Oh, yes, myself and Stars Tyrant, who is on the podcast as well. Say hello, Stars. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that we've started our first lore playthrough of um, of Resident Evil Gaiden. Oh yes, an absolute classic. I'm sure everyone will agree. Best game ever. Blah blah blah. Anyway, that's on our. <laughs> you guys did a fantastic job, and it looked brilliant. Whoever was responsible for putting that up with the Game Boy Color kind of skin, and you guys were a little bit worried on the night about the tech issues and tech... not not to go too much into it, but we had some woeful emulation issues. We've streamed most of the games in the entire series now, and the only one that's given us any real grief has been Resident Evil Gaiden for some reason a Game Boy Color game I think we've isolated the problems and it shouldn't occur next time but I, you know my sincerest apologies for the first sort of hour was a production mess and I always I always like frustrate myself trying to bring everybody the best streaming quality and whatnot. And can I just credit Sean was trying in the days beforehand to make sure that the stream was perfect and it was going to work and they'd done tests and everything and then of course when you go live on the on the night no, <laughs> it's, sta- it's just standard. It's standard. But this is available on our YouTube channel, so you will know that myself and Stars tend to stream on Twitch, and there are personal streams. But we've been testing out YouTube as a kind of law stream playthrough, uh, and so we thought we'd give Gaiden a go because not met not everyone knows the in depth nature of Gaiden. It's uh, it, it's a bit more nuanced than people think, and that's yeah. why I did my editorial on it. And so part one is now up, and you can watch that back. And brace yourself for some awful voice acting. Oh, <laughs> oh man, I'd forgotten. Did you have to Alex remind got, me? Alex has got something to say about this. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what he's got to say. It's Gaiden, by the way. Sorry, I can't help myself. It's you guys always saying Gaiden, and I was Gaiden. I was, okay, uh, apologies. <laughs> I bought a CRT recently and a Game Boy player on the GameCube. Lovely. So I'm actually going to go back to Resident Evil Gaiden probably in the near future and see how it holds up. It might actually be a lot better than I remember it. It's pretty solid. And whilst we've got you on the stream, I may ask you about Gaiden. Yeah. So I've done a bit of I say research in, into it. And there's always debate about what the word Gaiden actually means and the cultural associations with that. I mean, a, a literal translation is almost like side story, side chapter. And that kind of thing. And I was just going to say, I mean, in, in terms of where, where Capcom have always pitched the game, it was only really until, I think, the inside of Dark Side Chronicles kind of supplemental material where it, was, it, it wasn't included, if you like, on the list of what they consider to be canonical. So it took quite a long time for there to be any form of official confirmation that perhaps it wasn't a canonical title. But I think there's always been an association because of the title. It automatically meant it was non-canon. I I don't think it is. And the fact that Mikami was actually quite heavily involved in it from what the producer of the game said. Ooh, that is very interesting to hear because... I have a very different understanding of of Resident Evil Gaiden's development. Oh, this Uh, is good stuff. Next excited. Update the article. First off, the word the the Japanese word Gaiden. I guess if you look at it literally, like the two the two Chinese characters that form the word, it literally means outside story. 
So it, it, it's definitely not like a central plot line or a central story in any sense yep. of the word. I think a lot of people have adopted the word side story or spin-off over the years because there isn't really a great word to translate Gaiden directly, but it does have the nuance of a piece of work that is tangentially related to something else, but it's not important or it's mm. not part of the central the central the central plot line. It doesn't necessarily mean it's non-canon, so I, I do agree that that might have been in contention for a while for a lot of people. It's kind of weird because I think the person who wrote the story of Gaiden, it was the director of Code Veronica, so his yep. his name was uh, Hiro Kikato. He wrote the story with the assumption that it would not necessarily be a non-canon game. I think maybe Capcom's intention was that it would be non-canon, but he wrote it as if it wasn't. So there's nothing there's nothing really in Gaiden itself that precludes it from being a part of the centralized Resident Evil story. But the cat's out of the bag by the time RE4 comes out, right? And in obviously the 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 story of that game has had no influence on four and Revelations 2 came out and buried never references anything of the sort either. So uh, I would say, yeah, by the time Dark Side Chronicles came out, it was an official thing. But I think the assumption at Capcom was always that it was unofficial. But the actual writer of the, <laughs> of the story didn't seem to understand that. When it came out, too, we're, we're talking about earlier versions of 4 as well. So, you know, there was a potential where that may have lined up. Yeah. At one stage in, in, in early development for one of those versions, or it could have been you know, used as a, as a jumping off point. So that goes back to so the information we have from Tim Hull comes from Retro Gamer magazine, where he had an interview with them. There's like a four page spread of Gaiden. And Kato, they don't know about his involvement much. And they, they kind of say, oh, speak to our Virgin Media representative for that. But in terms of Mikami, they say that he's the one that insisted on having the slider bar put in for the first-person combat. That was his involvement. And also with regards to the storyline, that was very much off-limits. M4 were given the opportunity to do what they liked in terms of how to get from A to B and what, what they wanted to do within, within the game. But the actual storyline was completely off-limits, which absolutely tallies up with what you, you've just been saying, Alex. And also, again, to me, it, it suggests that at one point there was the, 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 an intent to have it canonical and then they changed their minds. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that Capcom wanted to preserve the brand image of Resident Evil at the time. So yep. having well-known characters in it, having a plot line that seemed broadly within the, the scope of the series at the time. I don't know if I would agree, based on my own conversations with Mikami-san, uh, that he had a heavy involvement in Resident Evil Guided. I think maybe to the team in the UK, it probably seemed like he was quite deeply involved. But I think from Mikami's perspective, he was just signing off on ideas. Either he or somebody else came up with, because Mikami at the time was a producer, so he had very little creative input on a lot of the games between Resident Evil, the original Resident Evil, and Resident Evil Remake. So I think this is a big misconception that a lot of people have about Mikami's role in, in the series. But when he became a producer after the first game, his ability to influence the game's creative direction was very limited. He left that to all the various directors of RE2, RE3, Code Veronica, Zero. So to hear that he came in with the Resident Evil guide and had a very strong say in the creative direction doesn't seem to match my understanding. He's, he's credited as an advisor, I think, in the in the in the book. I think exactly. that they talk, Tim Holt speaks in the in the interview about how they were kind of honoured to have him. I was going to say, Nick. I mean, that's the one thing you could easily see this being a project that, from a standpoint, 
Mikami had no, no reason to even have any involvement in that. If he did, that's kind of impressive in its own right. Like, like he yeah, could have, yeah. this could have been easily handled by other producers and team. I mean, yeah. even the fact that the title in the English wasn't given a different title, it wasn't called Resident Evil something else. They actually took, you know, a, a, this this word and put it into the English language version. Well, in the Japanese box, of course, so Alex, going back to your point about the kind of literal translation or, or, or the translation of it, I think in the, in the Japanese box art on the back, it literally says another biohazard. Quite Does interesting. I have a copy of the game in the drawer, but yeah, I, I guess it's on the back, right? Yeah. There's, or I think it's the, it looks like the the, the image I found uh, certainly looks to be the box. I have a, have a check. This oh, this is wonderful, isn't it? We can actually listeners, ladies and gentlemen. Nick's done it at last. He's finally got <laughs> his, his, his <laughs> dedicated Gaiden episode. Unbelievable. <laughs> He gets us all up on a Saturday morning on the pretense that we're going to interview Alex, but they had it planned from the beginning. It, it was all guidance. So this is signed by Hiroki Takaro. <laughs> it might oh, be cool. the only copy about Gaiden he's ever signed. <laughs> in English, in English, it does say another biohazard. I think when they say another biohazard, it just means another incident's happened. Because if you, if you read the Japanese, it literally says an, one more biohazard. It feels like another one's happening. Another incident. Yeah, on a on a luxury cruise ship. Completely original story featuring Barry from the first Biohazard, Leon from Biohazard 2, and another new character. So yeah, the, the, the advertising in the game kind of emphasizes a lot about what makes this game very unique compared to the, the other Resident Evil games. So it, there's like a line here that says, oh, there's, there's an original battle system, you know, tailored for the Game Boy Color. So, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to tell that this was a non-game game. Thank you so much, Alex. This has been amazing. Sorry, yeah. Very You've made next year. Oh, dear. There is a final bit of sight. I'll quickly go through the streaming new Stars Tyrants. Also, have been streaming Resident Evil DS, which is well worth checking out as well. We had some fun with that, where we realised that the, the true boss of Resident Evil DS is, in fact, Candles, and trying to blow Candles out on an emulated version. <laughs> yeah, indeed. We managed to get around it in the end, but that first uh, first part. It's just been emulation woes lately, guys. I can only apologise for the <laughs> we, we we iron out the kinks every I, single see, time. I think in this case that's not a woe, that's just entertainment. That's <laughs> it's entertainment. But a very rarely streamed game, so one you might want to check that out as well. That's on our YouTube channel. Yeah, it's first time I'd played that in a good ten years, Deadly Silence. And I actually do agree with what a lot of people say. I think in terms of like raw gameplay it is the definitive version of the original now. I think they've, but they've balanced it quite well. They've obviously changed a lot of things like the hitboxes on the hunters and they're a lot fairer to fight now. So it was solid to play again. I really enjoyed it. That does finish our site news. So we're now going to have a look and a sub-discussion on Resident Evil Village. All clear. Oh, move! Chris? What the hell? Take him away. In life and in death, we give glory. The bell tolls for us all. They're coming again! Ha 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 
Mia. Quit being so paranoid. Long ago, a young girl went with her mother to pick berries for her father, who was hard at work. But the forest greeted them with a dark, cold silence. The bushes empty. Yet determined to find the berries, the rascal broke free of Mother's grasp and vanished into the trees. Mother's worried cries faded fast as the girl ran on, over vine, under branch, and into the forest deep. It's just a local tale. If it's just looking, window shop away. So the new trailer was revealed at Tokyo Game Show, which itself was... Mm, uh, there was a distinct lack of information, I think, is probably the polite way of, <laughs> of, of saying that there wasn't a lot new uh, at Tokyo Game Show overall. But we did get to see... Uh, I'd say it's an extended version of, of the first trailer uh, that we saw. I'd also like to take this opportunity as well to thank Alex for providing uh, tweeted translations of what the developers spoke about. So... After the the trailer was revealed and we had the kind of English translated version on on, on the stream, there was then a off screen demo and a roundtable discussion with some of the producers and developers. And Alex was very kind. He tweeted on his Twitter uh, at CVX Freak what what they are talking about, and it gave it a lot of insight, especially because they had <laughs> the audacity to play the game and not let anyone else see it. Grr, we all wanted to Sorry. see a playable demo. <laughs> I'm sorry for the spam to whoever. <laughs> it was fantastic because it really it really helped actually bring to life what he was playing because the person who was playing it was oh he was a picture to watch he really was he was uh, <laughs> he was absolutely petrified I'm going Peter where do I go Peter what do I do and it was it was quite funny to watch but it was what like watching Gillette Soccer Saturday for UK uh, listeners watching people watch a football match but there we go. It's a, it's a Japanese thing. And I guess maybe it, it's partly a cultural thing, but Japanese is a very contextual language. So even if you're not saying something out loud, you can kind of tell how people feel with their facial expressions. And I think that was kind of what they were going for with the TGS off-camera stream, where they're trying to sell the idea that it's a very scary and intimidating and very tense. And they wanted the celebrity who was playing the demo to kind of show that to people. And I think for people here in Japan, that was kind of normal. So I can understand okay. why Western audiences were kind of lost mm. on the idea of that of that approach. I was just saying it's interesting because obviously having the Tokyo Game Show, this everything you know from home basically this year, it, it meant this year has been much more accessible to Western audiences on an online platform than perhaps has in previous years. So not to say they haven't streamed the stage stuff at, from previous Tokyo Game Shows. I, I definitely remember seeing stuff for one of the remakes and Seven as well. But to actually provide an English commentary, and I almost want to say it's a shame that they didn't extend that 
and it's good that you were able to continue tweeting, but they could have still had someone doing commentary, I think, live, just like they had previously, and kept that English audience involved in it. Maybe. I mean, I think in, in actual practice, it would have been very difficult to interpret one for one. I could have done it. I just didn't get my setup working in time for it when it started. So I just went into tweeting mode instead. But it's not like they were talking about terribly complex things. But I do think that logistically, it probably was going to be very difficult to offer uh, an interpretation for that, that they could have prepared for in advance. Because all the other segments, those those interpretations were done days in advance. It was kind of unusual. And, and I do think that to be fair to Capcom, that was not targeting people who weren't from Japan. It would have been nice if they had actually shown something. I find it worrying that they're still not ready to show gameplay. It's interesting what you say because you've got the audio of it and that obviously generated a lot of discussion as well in, in, in amongst the community because you know it's something to talk about. It sounds like, and I'm interested to hear what everyone else thinks, because I think you tweeted he's, it, this was at the beginning of the game, and it sounds like a bit similar to Resident Evil 4, where we kind of get that onslaught, and it looks like he was, as I said, he was going through hell, this chap who was playing it, and I don't think he had much luck, but I just wanted to hear what everyone else's views were if after 7, which had that kind of nice build-up, very much a survival horror-esque vibe, is there a concern that it's going a bit more action-y and a bit more Resident Evil 4-like? I think Capcom have said it is going to be a bit more on the action-heavy side compared to 7, but is anyone a bit worried that it's going to go too much from what we've heard? Me personally, unless they go down the route of you know Resident Evil 5 gameplay, you know, I don't just say this as a lazy criticism. I really do feel five in terms of the gameplay is almost, you know, Call of Duty with a Resident Evil skin. But I'm not too concerned because I like, you know, the siege type uh, combat that I've never had a problem with that. One of my favorite parts of Resident Evil 4 is, is, is you know, is being under siege in the cabin with, with Louis. And yeah, I don't have a problem with that. If, if I say if it's a more combat oriented game from start to finish with, you know, enemies that drop ammo. So as you make, you've made this point before, Nick, that, you know, you're seeking them out as opposed to, you know, hiding from them. Yeah, I, I'm not overly concerned at this stage. It's hard to say without with seeing so little, but I have I have every faith in them on this one. I've got a good feeling about it to be honest, but there really is so little to say I, I, other than just I, it's a feeling I've got. I don't really have any concern either. I mean, I think part of it is not trying to do the same tricks they did with Seven, like they're like it's still in first person and stuff, but doing something different because you're going in. I think the expectation is that people who are playing this probably at least played Seven, so they don't want to do exactly the same thing they did with Seven. You said you, you're, you're a, a bit concerned that they haven't shown anything yet. Yeah, that's more of a technical thing. There was the Dust Golem rumor about the game not performing well on the PS5 hardware. And there, there's a very obvious tie to Sony marketing in terms of all the information about Village that's been divulged so far. And there's also like the weird might be on PS4 and Xbox One. We don't mm. know yet kind of you know taking those half steps so it just kind of makes me wonder if, if if the game really isn't in a condition for it to be shown publicly i mean i think the game conceptually will be very good i think it's sounding like the very best of re7 combined with the very best of re4 yeah. thematically and in terms of implementation and you know based on what, what i heard from the off-camera stream it sounds like an intense game i think it'll be very entertaining as long as it plays well so I'm not really too worried about, you know, the, the game as a whole. It's just that it's a really weird kind of way to market the game. 
RE2 and RE7 were revealed six months before they came out, but the timing has always been very consistent and they've always had new things to show every few weeks. Whereas I think, how, how long has it been since the initial reveal now? Like four months, right? The time between RE3's announcement and RE3's actual release, right? Whereas with Village, we, <laughs> we still don't really have videos of the gameplay in depth. So it's a very interesting departure from what they've been doing for the last few years. Do you think there's some sort of internal pressures to try and get this out soon for the 25th anniversary year? Probably, yeah. I think this is for like a, a few different reasons. I mean, first, they pretty much rushed RE3 out the door. I think I think everyone mm. can kind of agree that, you know, the, the lead time between the announcement and the release date were very short. And, you know, releasing a Resident Evil game in April is a very unusual thing. And obviously, they were trying to do that before E3. The other thing is that until Monster Hunter Rise was announced, Capcom had no other games actually announced for release. So I think part of that was for Capcom to show that they had other things in development. And I think the other consideration was that they wanted people to know that they were making next-gen games. So I think it's just a bunch of mm. different factors that compelled Capcom to show the game a lot earlier than they would have in any other situation. I mean, it's I'm excited about it, but at the same time, I don't know if, if, if their current approach is building goodwill. It could have been better, but you know, it's I'll let the PR people do their job. I was just going to say to Alex, we're all very fond of Resident Evil 7 on the podcast. It's pretty unanimous in our sort of love for and admiration for the, the direction that they took the series in with that game. And I only saw on uh, Twitter a couple of days ago, you had to uh, link someone the Metacritic scores between 6 and 7. Because it's, cause it's, it's, still, it's still interesting to see how a lot of people, and we have listeners on our, on our Discord who you know are in agreement with those that say you know Resident Evil 7 wasn't the right direction to go it's profound that Capcom has developed two very different but very good styles of Resident Evil. And I don't think I, there are a lot of game series out there that really do that well. I've had this theory for years where I basically, within Capcom, this, the series is everything and nothing to everyone because obviously they have all these different spin-off ideas and different styles of gameplay, action, first person. And there's not too many franchises that manage to do this successfully in different areas. But it also means that the audience is constantly fractured or splintered, and it's hard to please everyone. It makes it very difficult for them to make decisions on where they want to take the franchise next or which games need sequels sometimes. Right. That, that is actually a very accurate theory. Based on you know the conversations I've had with people over the years, people at Capcom, rather, everybody has a very different idea of what Resident Evil should be. Even, even going back to the early games, Mikami was all about that horror, but as soon as Kami directed the second game it's very well known that he's not a fan of horror so he would have wanted mm. things to be more action oriented at the time and then we saw where he went with devil may cry after that so you know resident evil being handled the way it has been for a quarter of a century now right it doesn't surprise me that there are many competing but in my opinion largely compatible differences between the various styles you know it's not like metal gear solid where everything had to be dictated by hideo kojima right you know with mm. resident evil there's a lot more variety yeah i think the only other game series like big game series out there that really has people debating about the different styles is the mario games and <laughs> i think that's that's a good thing for resident evil really because you know it's a horror game so you'd imagine that you know it's fairly limited in how it can be portrayed but actually capcom's figured out in clever ways how to take this horror formula and kind of go about it in a bunch of different ways and you know i don't personally believe that we've seen everything that capcom can do with resident evil in any given time 
I think there are a lot more ideas they can go with. Um, I imagine that there are a few games in development now that will be very different from how Resident Evil 2, 3, and 7 have been. So it's quite exciting to see what they're going to do. I always say you just think of the, the franchise in eras, and I think you do as well, the way that you've presented the books, especially that you've been working on. But the idea of like the first game to kind of pre or up to Resident Evil 4, it's almost like Resident Evil 4 up to about Resident Evil 7. And now we're in this kind of third era of transition and change, different producers, different ideas. But every generation has its own little side spin-offs and different concepts that some of them take off and some of them don't. And yeah, I totally agree. I'll be interested to see what, where we go next in the next five, six, seven years. When they have released these very different games, you know, whenever I think of Resident Evil 5, they've always been extremely successful within that genre of gameplay. So if you're a fan of the more action-orientated games, Resident Evil 5 is a fantastic game. You know, they've always produced these very, very high-quality, well-produced games, whether you're a, a, a fan of that style or not. You know, the fans from within that style, they've always resonated very strongly with those fans. And like Sean, I've got a very good feeling about RE8. I, I do feel that the success of Resident Evil 7 I'm so pleased. I really do feel that has and will shape the direction that the series takes. But at the same time, I think they're going to look at the successes they had with RE4, the way that progressed the series. You know, not just aesthetically, I really do get a feeling that 7 is going to kind of take the the best, you know, the best sort of action elements of Resident Evil 4 and the best survival horror elements of, of 7. And uh, I think we're going to get a fantastic game, you know, utilising both those styles. Does RE3 not worry anybody, um, though? Huh. <laughs> yeah. It, a good point. For me, yeah. for me, it does. It was kind of the, the roadblock in a, an otherwise very solid generation for Resident Evil. Less of that and more of RE7 and RE2. The biggest issue we've all had with Remake 3 and Remake 2 is, is more to do with what's the storyline going forward in terms of are these 100% remakes like the Resident Evil 1 remake, which seemingly replaced the original, or does the original storyline still take precedent? So it raises questions as to what's canon going forward. Capcom may feel it doesn't necessarily matter, but there's fundamental questions in Remake 3, like, does Nest 2 exist? Did Jill kill Nemesis in <laughs> The Dead Factory or in Nest 2? Because Remake 2 felt very, and Sean described it as like a Cliff Notes version of Resident Evil 2 uh, in our review, which I, I think is quite accurate. Resident Evil 3 felt more like a remake in the sense that they were very specific to the minute as to when things were happening. At no point in Remake 2 did we get a time and date as to what's going on. You had to kind of work it out. Whereas Resident Evil 3, we had, it's now 12.03 on October the 1st. Yes, October the 1st, the city is being blown up, that kind of thing. They made a very specific point of saying this is what's happening. I think they were trying to do that in RE3 Remake to show that there is a very specific connection between it and Resident Evil 2. And I don't know if the Western PR really drove this point home the way the Japanese PR did. All the RE3 advertising materials here in Japan were very fixated on how it completed the RE2 story. Early on, I think we, as far as the English language audiences go, we, we got like a very non-committal comment from Capcom that these were just reimaginings of the scenarios and that they didn't take an overall precedence. But then we've had later comments Peter Fabiano in particular has made the comment that they both basically exist in the same environment, which for two kind of works, as, as Nick's alluded to, kind of that, and Sean made the comment that Cliff Notes version, all the main plot points of two happen, in, but the three is such a grand departure from a lot of the story points and scenario situations, like obviously Jill not going to, to the RPD and 
the way Brad's demises and all that sort of stuff is quite varied and changed compared to the original. And so that's where it becomes such a confusing kind of situation. I mean, uh, I guess it's a good chance to ask you, Alex, has any of that been portrayed in Japan? Is is there discussions about that from anyone over there? Or is it just something that's just accepted for what it is? I do think people have asked that question. I don't know if people consider it much of a big deal. I think the story has always been kind of seen as a means to an end rather than something for people to dissect you know, in great detail, like a lot of us have done. So I, don't, I guess if you know Japanese, you know, there are like certain expressions that allow us to write off these inconsistencies in a very natural way. It's it's kind of hard to describe, but for example, like when the original RE3 came out, you went to the RPD and you saw the boarded up doors. I, I think the answer is the developers don't want you to go through that door is enough for people here. And then there's like a, there's a, there's a linguistic expression that kind of allows that to slide. and then. People just accept it. <laughs> Whereas in English, I don't know if, if that's as easy to do. There's an expression in Japanese that, that literally translates, we cannot be helped or there's nothing we can do about it. And I, I feel like that's what the average Japanese Resident Evil fan would say when they see like something that's not consistent with RE2. It'll, they'll, they'll just end up saying, oh, well, what can you do? You know, keep playing the game. <laughs> So in terms of the people who write the game as well and, and who develop the game, that, that, that's, that's a pervasive kind of ideology where, you know, like I, like, like I said earlier, it's not all about being 100% realistic. It's all about building a game world that's believable, but also kind of fantastical in its own right. Those two things totally that. make sense together. Yeah. In answer to your original question, though, uh, Alex, you know, does does the direction of RE3 sort of worry me? I'm quite well known on this podcast for being quite anti-remake, because I think the originals are it's so, so timeless. And I think they've had a, like certainly a new lease of life with the seamless HD projects and whatnot. They've kind of nullified the need of a remake for me. So as a result of that, you know, obviously we've got the, the 4R rumour right around the corner. And as you look through the remakes, you know, 1, 2 and 3... Each subsequent remake we've had has moved further and further away from the source material to the point now where I, I wonder whether it's almost dangerous, in a sense, to try and remake 4. Because 4 is like the, the video game darling, if that makes any sense. It's it's so you know historical in terms of what it did to gaming, how it reinvented the franchise, that I, I, I do wonder if they could do more harm than good in, in trying to remake I, that kind of thing. I, I completely agree that there is a high element of risk involved with remaking a game like Resident Evil 4 and not doing it right. You know, remaking Resident Evil 4 is like remaking Super Mario Brothers 3. You know, if you change things too much, it's not going to go well with certain segments of the population. <laughs> and, you know, seeing how Resident Evil Village is shaping up makes mm. me wonder if they're going to go in a very different direction for RE4. You know, Capcom hasn't made a, a game as long as RE4 since, I guess, RE6 might have been longer. Capcom's capacity to make long RE engine games has yet to be proven. So it's a concern for me. I mean, I never, I never ascribed to the belief that a remake of RE4 was necessary. Um, I mean, if they wanted to do something like what Bluepoint is doing with Demon Souls, I think that would have been very cool. You know, preserving the original content, but, you know, redoing the graphics, keeping most of this, the, the, the same basic gameplay. Or I think with Shadow of the Colossus, this was kind of a thing as well. I think that would be the best type of remake for RE4. But, you know, Capcom might have other plans. So we'll see. I'm going to ask you this, Alex, just because as an aside, if, if they were to remake Code Veronica, what would you think? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, if, if they remade Code Veronica like they did with RE2, I'd be totally fine with that. I think it is unrealistic to expect a remake coming out in the 2020s to ascribe very closely to 1990s game design. You know, it's a different era. When, when the first remake came out, only six years had passed since the original. I was pretty young when I got into Resident Evil. Uh, I think I was still in my teens. So, you know, six years is a long time in that context. But, you know, as adults now, you know, time kind of goes by a lot faster. And six years is definitely not a long period of time. So, you know, I can understand why Remake 1 kind of clung onto the old design very carefully. But I think any remake of in any style today is not going to be like the old 1990s Resident Evil games. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've made my peace with that. And I do think Code Veronica has a lot of things about its setting and about the story and the characters that can be made even better with a remake. And I think, you know, unless they do crazy things with the story, you know, that's probably the only opportunity we'll ever get to have Albert Wesker in a <laughs> in RE Engine game, right? Do you have any thoughts, Alex, as to why, if we are believing the, the 4R rumor, do you have any idea why they would potentially have skipped Code Veronica? I think because Code Veronica doesn't have a number, and a lot of the people who have the most affinity for Code Veronica aren't even at Capcom anymore, as far as I'm concerned. All the people who used to be there, like Mikami and Yoshiki Okamoto, for example, they all very much like Code Veronica. So I think if they were still in the company, the chances would be a lot higher. I think these remakes allows Capcom to make more Resident Evil games without having to come up with more storylines. And I think the uh, the other problem is that Code Veronica would very much be a horror-oriented Resident Evil game. I think with 2 having come out, 7 having come out, Village being horror-oriented, I just think it makes more sense for them to maybe try something else. Maybe something more action-oriented. And maybe for them, Resident Evil 4 just seems like a more convenient second choice or or next choice rather so who knows i mean i think maybe someday they'll revisit code veronica at some point they're going to need to make a horror oriented over the shoulder resident evil game without you know stepping on the toes of whatever the next numbered resident evil game is going to be so maybe they'll go back to code veronica at that point i wanted to quickly ask you mentioned about if they were to do a remake of certain things you mentioned like demon souls i think you're talking about like polished up versions like hd versions of the originals and i was just curious in your like your discussions you know kind of interactions with some of the developers of the original games has the topic of these hd seamless projects you know two and three which i'm sure you've seen i just wondered if you'd like heard any remarks made back from you know the from capcom about these projects well they of course follow their fan scenes very closely in very distant history i think it was the fan hack of super street fighter 2 or street fighter 2 rather the rainbow edition that inspired them to make Super Street Fighter 2 or Street Fighter 2 Turbo. I can't remember what <laughs> which version was which. So there technically is a precedent for Capcom to do something like that. I think they're very much committed to the direction that they're going in right now. I mean, I wouldn't say they won't ever re-release the old original Resident Evil trilogy ever again. But I, 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 ser- I, ser- I sincerely doubt they would actually take a fan-made hack and actually integrate it into an official product. I think there are a lot of rights issues that, that would need to be sorted out. Because, I mean, technically, these are unauthorized and therefore unpermitted modifications. Yeah. And we have the RE4 one as well. Sean, you were suggesting this. Uh, did you tweet re- this week why there's no need for an RE4 remake? Is we've got this fan project that's just, you know, bringing mm. us the original in HD polished graphics. It's a little bit more than just, like, texture work, though. They are actually, like, rebuilding character models and uh, new assets mm. for the game. It is, it's, it's, it's very similar to the sort of work that Bluepoint have done, basically. 
uh, with previous. Right. And if I had to imagine what Capcom's actual stance on this is, I think the creatives might like the idea a lot. I imagine the legal department wouldn't be thrilled with the idea. <laughs> yeah. <though. laughs> Bloody lawyers. You know, I, <laughs> I can <laughs> testify. This isn't, just, this isn't just Capcom. You know, I think Nintendo recently mm-hmm. had this problem where, like, they released their own updated version of Super Mario 64, Mario but 64. some hackers did a much better version, and people were wondering, you know, why isn't that great version on the Switch now? And, you know, the reality is, if Nintendo or any company doesn't make it themselves, then you're kind of going into a gray zone, acknowledging who did what, and it, I work in the game industry as well, and you know I'm, I'm trying to navigate through these you know obstacles every day, and it's not easy, and it's not always you know the best results, unfortunately. If Capcom were to re-release RE One, Two, Three, I think it's possible they would rebuild it or improve on it in their own with their own direction. It's kind of like they I mean, did with Code Veronica, you know, the MT Framework version on the PS3 and Xbox yeah. 360. Right, yeah, they they had to practically remake the game, you know, to run on the new engine. They just ended up using the same assets. So it's not like Capcom's never done it. And I think Ultra Street Fighter 2 is another example of them taking a past game and putting a new coat of paint on it. Never say never, but it's just that unlike Street Fighter 2, for example, we have, you know, real remakes of RE2 and RE3, and RE1 for that matter. So it's really, I'm not optimistic, but I hold out hope, I guess. (laughs) I don't know whether anybody saw, but last month Alex actually shared a like mock-up art of a 25th anniversary collection for Switch of the uh, of the the first four games. It was wonderful. Was it? That was me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have taken someone familiar with Photoshop like maybe 15 minutes. It took me like three hours. Yeah, I think it got a good few thousand likes. I seem to recall. So there's certainly demand for it. Thank you so much. That was an interesting discussion on Village. Nick, I'm just going to ask you one last question related to it. You're excited if they can actually get it running on the current generation of consoles so you don't have to upgrade anytime soon. Absolutely. If we can get it on the PS4, then uh, I won't be buying a PS5 until whatever the next Resident Evil game is after that. Based on my knowledge of game development, I mean, I'm sorry, but Village does not look like a next-gen Resident Evil game. It really, there's nothing about it that looks like you couldn't do it on a PS4 or an Xbox One. So yeah. if you couldn't get it working, I'd actually be very surprised. By even suggesting that they're looking into it, to me, suggests that it's going to happen. So thank you for that. There's been a fascinating uh, discussion on Village and many other things relating to Capcom and uh, Resident Evil. But now, Alex, we want to discuss with you your project. And this is why you are here today. So we can talk about your wonderful, itchy, tasty book that is due. So we've put together some questions that we want to put to you and just feel free to tell us all about it. So I suppose if anyone who doesn't know, did you want to give a quick introduction as to what this project is and what you're offering as well with regards to uh, crowdfunding? 
So I, I wrote this book across a period of three years after the release of RE7. And it, it focuses on, I guess, officially the first 12 years of the development of the Resident Evil series. Living in Japan and speaking Japanese, I was able to speak to just about every major creator involved in each title between the first Resident Evil and Resident Evil 4. And thanks to that, I was able to get a lot of anecdotes that have never been spoken about in previous media. And I was able to take all those anecdotes from the creators and turn them into a kind of a coherent story about the development of Resident Evil games, how they get greenlit, what inspired them, how the creators felt when they were making these games. So yeah, I put that all into book format. I started the crowdfunding campaign about a year ago, actually. Time flies. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that, you know, the book was funded uh, relatively quickly thanks to the efforts of the community who, who really pushed the project and were very supportive of it. We're now at, I think it's 151% funded, which according to the publisher, one of the better, better performing books on their site. 896 supporters, comes out in April, 2021. We need a bit more time to get it ready, thanks to, unfortunately, thanks to COVID-19 and you know the impact that's had. But I think if you read the Polygon excerpts that went up, uh, over the last few years, I am confident that any any Resident Evil fan will like the book and will like the information that you know they 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 they're able to find out from it. And I hope that it gives people a newfound appreciation for just how much work it takes to build a game IP like this, how much effort it takes to put yourself in the shoes of the creator and have to make such important decisions. You know, I, I hope that people love Resident Evil more after they read it. One of the things I think like the great you know selling point and the thing i'm really looking forward with this book i mean correct me if i'm wrong i think it's the first time that someone like you said you speak japanese and you and you live in japan it's the first time that we've got like it feels like one of us like a fan that's been able to have such a direct relationship and communication with with these developers and like and we've seen through your twitter feed that, that you know you this isn't these aren't through like third parties or just you know i'll post you the questions and you know through a translator i get them back you know you're going out to lunch with these guys you've got very close with them and so you know obviously a great privilege for you but a great opportunity for us for the fans through that, those relationships that you're developing that we're going to get a real personal insight into the development of the of this series that i don't think we've ever had before in a book i mean not that i know yeah i mean i know there's there's one resident evil history book that was written in french a few years ago and i don't read french all that well i was gonna say as an aside because you've got japanese a little bit of french some spanish i'm assuming from america anything else that you've managed to pick up or, i mean obviously little bits here and there traveling and i mean i can read korean oh wow um, and my parents are from the philippines so that that language uh, i don't speak it uh, very much unfortunately i i have always liked languages and i've always been kind of this globe trotting kind of person i like my favorite subjects in school were history and geography <laughs> so uh, I ended up getting my master's in international relations. Yeah, going back to the book, though, I think it might disappoint some people, actually. I don't know if that's a strange thing to talk about. But I do think if, if, if you're expecting a book about the plot and the lore of Resident Evil, you might be disappointed. So I would dial those expectations down somewhat, Okay. if, if I'm being completely honest. It's a, d a development tale. You're, you're talking about the impacts of development, how decisions were made for the focus of the franchise. But for you know mm. the way the franchise released and, ha and how it was received, I guess is really the yes. focus, isn't it? 
my question is always going to be the most obvious question. Why Why did you decide to do this? Obviously, we know that you're a huge Resident Evil fan. Did you wake up one morning and go, I'm going to write a book? Or was it always been something perhaps in your childhood at one point, always going, I want to write a book one day, and suddenly thought, why don't I write it about this? So it was GDC 2017, right after Resident Evil 7 came out and had done very well, both critically and commercially. And uh, because I'm in the game industry, I got to go to GDC uh, as an attendee and I went to the Resident Evil panel and it was interpreted. It was delivered by Nakanishi and Pete Fabiano, who was interpreting for Nakanishi. But it was really interesting because Capcom was being very transparent and very forward about the, the challenges that they encountered in coming up with the direction of Resident Evil 7. Because, you know, even though not many people will say it out loud in such an explicit way, like Resident Evil 6 was a, a tremendous speed bump as far as how Capcom should handle the Resident Evil series is concerned. Resident Evil 6 really set off a lot of alarms as to whether Capcom had made the right choices or not. So with, with RE7, they were taking a lot of risks and thankfully it paid off. But going to that GDC talk was fascinating because I could understand both the original content that Nakanishi-san was talking about and what Pete was explaining in English. And by virtue of there being two languages at play, the time kind of gets cut in half and the, the whole talk is over before you know it. And it kind of gave me a, a newfound appreciation for having committed myself to learning Japanese to a fluent level. And I think being a big Resident Evil fan, I felt like I had this tool that not many people seem to have. I mean, I actually don't know any other bilingual Resident Evil fan unfortunately. And I felt that unless someone else came along and was willing to do this, like I had to do it, I guess. And then, you know, other things like I had through my job, I have like the right connections and the right, uh, like I know how to approach doing things like interviewing game creators. Cause it's not, it's not a simple process of sending someone an email and hoping that they just do what you ask them to do. There's a very specific process on how you do it and, you know, maintaining respect for the other person and for Capcom as a company as well. So I, it, it just kind of felt like it was the right time and I had the right combination of connections and capabilities to to make it happen i mean i think to be honest if more people spoke japanese or if more capcom people spoke english themselves anybody could have probably written this book to be honest i don't i don't think the insight that i have is particularly unique to what i'm capable of doing it's just that i happen to be the one to actually do the interviews i could totally see myself passing on the interview transcripts to somebody else and they can formulate you know a different story that could be even more interesting than what i could write so I guess it's just a right place at the right time. How long did the, if we call it research time, then, if you like, to get those connections up and running? And was it an ongoing process? Did yeah. you start with like Resident Evil 1, then I, then I approached the Resident Evil 2 directors and that or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go in order specifically. The research part took about a year. And I had to go out of order because some people are easier to reach than others. Mikami-san was actually the hardest person to get in touch with. But luckily, it worked out in the end. Sorry, I was just going to ask, as an aside as well, I, I've talked to you about this, and the story of you, you've met Mikami more than once, and the first time you, you didn't speak too much Japanese, and so it was such a huge difference by the time you got to interview him this next time. It's a, I think it's such an amazing uh, experience for was... you to go through on a personal level. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, meeting Mikami-san, yeah, several times, having sitting down, having a meal with him. It's different when you speak his language and, when, and then when you don't. Oh man, I could talk about, you know, meeting Mikami-san all day. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, is rather, it is rather interesting when, when you meet him in a different context, I guess, if that makes sense. Me, Mikami-san's a very sharp individual. It, it doesn't surprise me that he, he's able to to act in the role of leader, you know, so. Does he have quite an aura around him? I mean, he does, especially around game fans, absolutely. Game fans, other creators revere him. A- anybody who was at Capcom in the 90s pretty much, in one way or another, attributes a lot of their creative and intellectual success to Mikami-san's guidance. Because Mikami-san, he's good at understanding people and he's good at making decisions that might not necessarily be comfortable for everybody because he knows it's the right thing to do he's a great judge of character that's what i wanted to say he can he can see things coming before they happen and he he, he's very calculating in terms of you know what might happen if one decision is made versus another that's an apt point because i think from his game catalog you always see something and all of his games are slightly ahead of the curve if you want to say for the most part there's there's something that becomes a trend in in wide gaming slightly beforehand even if it doesn't get the credit it deserves sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but he has definitely had a forward-thinking approach to the industry i think so it makes sense Yeah, and even if mikami might not necessarily make the best representation of a specific idea mikami is usually he's usually early to the party and a lot of the decisions and the creative direction he decides to go in are very influential. I would I would say Resident Evil 4 is probably the exception to the rule, where he was pretty much first in line, and he left a very big impact. Definitely. Yeah, he's a great guy, and you know now Microsoft seems to have a lock on him, which you know 2020 never stops surprising. I was going to say, you can go back to the next question, because I interrupted so rudely when you were talking about the interviews and process of uh, who was oh, difficult no, to, yeah. to get a hold of. Yeah, Mikami-san was hard to get a hold of, but because he works at Bethesda, which is now owned by Microsoft. I, you know, you have to get clearances for, for, for various different people, but others like Kamiya-san were very easy. I just think it really depends on, you know, what the person's doing now, how much they remember. But yeah, I think the most interesting interview I had was with Tokuro Fujiwara. He isn't terribly well known among newer fans of the series, but he was very much a huge part of the early history of Resident Evil because he, I mean, he, one, he made Sweet Home, right? That was his idea. Two, he was the head producer of Capcom's console development until he left and then it became Okamoto. But yeah, that was probably the most interesting interview I was able to do. I, I remember talking to you about that before you interviewed him and you weren't sure if you were going to get a chance to. And I remember saying to you, you really have to, because I think it's going to be such an eye-opening part of the the story in the early stages. He was such an important influence on Mikami that, you know, it, mm-hmm. and the production that it would be almost a missing chapter of your book if you hadn't had the chance to. So I would be glad when you right. told me, oh, I managed I managed to get a hold of him and I've, I've, I've gone and scheduled the interview. And then I was just like, wow, that's so cool. Like, just such an, a great person yeah. to get a hold of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there was one interview where it was like the miracle of all interviews because like nobody could have ever like predicted something like this would happen. But I actually, by chance, ran into someone whose father was a board member at Capcom. And I had met this person for other reasons. Like it wasn't even related to my job. He was introduced through someone that I knew, but he doesn't do anything with games. So, you know, we were getting acquainted and like, oh, I work in the game industry and I, I do biz dev. And he's like, oh, do you know a company named Capcom? And I'm like, yeah, of course I know Capcom. What about them? And he's like, oh, yeah, my, my, my father was a board member in the 90s. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And, and then he gave me the entire insight based 
basically about how Resident Evil saved Capcom from bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine because uh, this is the whole thing. Because Capcom had, you know, uh, Street Fighter, they partly bankrolled the feature film themselves to try and make it happen and there's a lot of profit issues and this is what right. i keep trying to understand and then and resident evil or biohazard it was just an unexpected smash success that no one saw coming and, and was so close to the cutting line you know so street fighter 2 had kind of run its course by 1996 and capcom wasn't sure if they were ever going to have another hit title again so resident evil was a very risky game but you know resident evil didn't come out soon enough for capcom's financial problems to be resolved so the the person who who who's the son of the board director who spoke to me pretty much told me that between maybe 1994 and 1996 you know capcom was bankrolled partly by the the wine vineyard in california that the ceo owns like <laughs> that's the level of insight that I, I i imagine even mikami wouldn't really know too much about that <laughs> yeah i was gonna say if he if he did it was probably rumor and happenstance you know that just like you that right. he found out something about it that he wasn't supposed to but that's that's oh that's right. amazing that's incredible wow that's something you don't you don't get every day <laughs> it reminds me of like several years ago when people had that panic about capcom's financial position you remember this it was like this terrible misrepresented financial reports. And it's just like, well, they didn't know the half the truth, you know, that actually in the 90s, there was probably some more reality on it than there is now. That's hilarious. I mean, you know, Capcom's a publicly traded business now, and you can purchase their stock. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, game company, like financial analysis tends to be fluff, like very, very much in the moment <laughs> assumptions that people make. And I think the reason why that, that tends to happen a lot is because a lot of these analysts don't actually intrinsically understand how the game industry works, right? And, you know, they, they don't know what it's like to be in the field, you know, on the ground getting their feet wet. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to make assumptions where it's like, oh, Capcom hasn't released a game this year that was that big. You know, they're going to go bankrupt next year or they're going to get bought out. It's a lot more nuanced than that in real life. I think the other part when it comes down to financials, people want the success stories. They want the big information. They want those sales numbers and they want the stuff that's done well over the stuff that isn't doing very well. And so it's easier to kind of hype up the, the, the good or conversely, if something's looking really bad, like dig down on something that they yeah. think is wrong. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And it's never usually easy to figure out any sort of major decision that anybody at Capcom has to make, right? Like Resident Evil 6, it's not like it sold few copies, right? It actually sold a lot of copies. Yeah, that well. You know, a lot of what, what a lot of people don't realize is that it sold a lot of copies at discounted prices in a mm. time frame far longer than Capcom would have liked. And, you know, they poured a lot of money into the game. You know, 2012 was it, fascinating. It, Capcom, you know, they Dragon's Dog was, it was an expensive game that didn't sell a uh, lot. I was going to say a lot of these hugely staffed mm. uh, games are very expensive. I think six was was Capcom's biggest cost production wise at the time. I you think could, it was Dragon's Dogma actually. Dragon's Dogma, the, okay. The, the most expensive before Dragon's Dogma, I heard that Okami was actually an extremely expensive game to make, which explains porting it. You know, now to try and, you know, it's had such a critical right. success, but never such the sales. I mean, Okami was the reason why, you know, Mikami and Kamiya, they all left the company eventually, mm. right? Yeah, no company wants to lose its most prized creators, but sometimes there's just no choice. Well, that does remind me, like, you know, Mikami did tell me that Resident Evil 3 was probably on paper the most successful Resident Evil game ever in terms of the amount of income it brought to Capcom because development was cheap. It was never rebooted. It sold a lot more than they were planning it 
too. And, you know, so there's a lot of different ways to look at the success of, of sure. different products for sure. I guess a follow-up question I've got that's kind of relevant that I was thinking about is just like, obviously we've seen those stories in recent years about the failure, I guess, in Mikami's eyes and just general sales for the remake when it first came out in 2002 and paid the head on zero and stuff. Did you talk to him a little bit more about that and how he felt at the time or... I did, and I mean, to be honest, it really the GameCube that kind of precluded Remake and, and to a lesser extent Zero from experiencing the, the mass market success that Capcom was hoping. I mean, that's a very big part of why it underperformed, but they also understood that. It, it was it was Mikami, part of Mikami's push to put these on the platform, right? I'm not mistaken in that. Nintendo never paid Capcom to, to actually have those games exclusively. It happens more often now where, where the money hats are actually a thing. But back in the day, Mikami just liked how Nintendo was as a game company. You know, Mikami always saw himself as a creator first and foremost. And, you know, a, a, a business person second, if at all. And I think the GameCube was the easiest platform for his team to develop on. And it allowed them to extract the best possible graphics without having to beat yourself up over it. But yeah, unfortunately, commercially, Nintendo didn't really do a great job of selling the GameCube. So that, that's why Remake and Zero didn't do so well. That's been vindicated because the remaster sold really well. If RE Remake and Zero had come out on PS2 back in the day, they probably would have done fine. Uh, I, I guess I guess the, only... the pointing of looking at Resident Evil 4 exactly is that thing, you know, how it sold on the GameCube. And obviously it, it, it probably upset Mikami that he'd made this statement about it not coming to any other platforms. And then before it even came out on GameCube, they're already seeing the PS2 version. But then the PS2 version outsold the GameCube version exactly as you'd expect, just on pure numbers. Yeah, I mean, there's... There's 21 million GameCubes out there and 156 million PS2s, so it doesn't surprise me so, so much <laughs> that, exactly. that, 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 it, that ended up happening. And I definitely don't agree with how Capcom did it as well. I do think they should have waited until it came out to, to make that decision. I mean, was it the right decision to port RE4 to PS2? Absolutely, for sure. And I think Capcom made up to Nintendo later on with the Wii port and a few exclusive games. So I, I think, you know, the relationship between Capcom and Nintendo was fine after that. By the time RE4 came out, the series had just turned nine years old, right? But but the reality is, um, you know, regardless of how Remake 1 did or how, how RE0 was uh, perceived when they came out or, or any, any console, console war-related topic, I think Resident Evil 4 being a vastly different game than, than, than anything that came before it was kind of a long time coming, uh, mm. regardless, because if you look back at the very, very beginning of Resident Evil 4 as an idea, I mean, first it was Resident Evil 3, right? Nemesis was not RE3 originally, and neither was Code Veronica. So, you know, Resident Evil 2 comes out, does extremely well, breaks sales records, and you know, Kamiya is given the, the chance to direct another Resident Evil game. And Kamiya, you know, way back in 1998 was already telling himself, you know what, I've already done more than, I've already done what I can do on the PlayStation 1. I need to move on to next-gen hardware and do something different and even better. So, you know, 1998, only two years after the first Resident Evil, you know, there are already plans in motion for Resident Evil on next-gen consoles. And, you know, eventually Kamiya's project veered way off course and became Devil May Cry. You know, and that's, that, 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 that's kind of the background as well. So Resident Evil 4 was always, it was always destined to be very different. But yes. because its development was so protracted and so much happened between Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 4, people kind of forget that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that it's exactly you said. Like, the franchise was nine years old, but if you're thinking about it in those terms, that sequel was seven years in the making. That's exactly. insane. When you just... Exactly. I mean, that said, you know, you know how Nemesis performed, how Code Veronica performed, Zero Remake, Outbreak, all of that, of course, influences how Capcom makes future projects. So I'm not saying that RE4 had the same approach to it in 1998 that they did in 2004. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of how successful anything between 2 and 4 were, I think 4 was just going to be different no matter what happened. I'm fascinated to know your, you don't need to reveal all trade secrets, your approach to actually contacting these people. Uh, you obviously had a bit of luck with the with the son of the board meeting. And of course, you're well connected within the gaming industry. You said emails won't necessarily cut it. Did you have to change approaches? I'm taking notes. <laughs> this is for George. I tell you so that sea that did that, that you know certain land that separates me from Japan. Those developers are so lucky. My God. <laughs> well, a lot of it actually comes down to connections. I work at a game music label called Brave Wave, and I actually work with a lot of people who worked at Capcom way back in the day, even before Mikami's time. People who did music for Mega Man and Street Fighter Two, okay. and those were the first people that I approached. I, I work very closely with Manami Matsumai. She's the composer of Mega Man 1. And that game came out in 1987. So she would have known who the people at Capcom were at that time. So she introduced me to Noritaka Funamizu. He was also one of the, the general producers at Capcom at the time. And he, he his most prominent work with the series was, was with Resident Evil Outbreak. So she introduced me to him. He introduced me to Fujiwara and Okamoto. And I had like a friend at Platinum Games introduce me to Kamiya-san. I had met Mikami-san way back in the day, so it wasn't too hard to get that uh, eventually set up. And I think Aoyama-san was probably the only one who I got acquainted to from someone outside of Japan, actually. And that's the director of of three. Three, yeah. I think it was um, Joel Welsh that had introduced me to him. Yeah, he was probably the only one where I didn't have to go through somebody actually in Japan. Uh, but, you know, in Japan, a lot of things do happen thanks to the connections that you have. So it, it pays to know the right people. I was just curious because you mentioned Kamiya-san. I think observers of his Twitter feed would be quite, you know, interested to, to kind of... No, kind of, you know, I mean, all joking aside, you know, how kind of you found him, you know, in terms of before before Alex answers this, his Twitter thing, it's a character for him. Right? It's a, it's an outlet. This is the way I've understood it. It's not just him. It's yeah. his, he creates a persona. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't say those things in real life. Right? <laughs> he will never actually say that out of his mouth. But I just think I just think you know this is this is how he sells himself on social media, which can be a very impersonal thing for a lot of people, right? But yeah, Kami Kamiya is great. He's probably the nicest one I know I, I've spoken to. No, that's interesting. I mean, that's why I asked the question because yeah, that, that it's interesting. People I, don't know. You, the, the, yeah, you played the game with you translating in Cytogen, uh, uh, isn't it? Um, three of you Heart sat down and yeah, 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 and and played through the game, and and you guys chatted, and it was amazing. It was really, really, it was really, really funny. Yeah, did he seem like a guy who would who would say terrible things to you for no reason? This is why I kind of preempted your answering this because I was like, that's clearly the Twitter thing is a is a persona, and then I heard it from a few other people. You know, like this whole thing is a, is is just a joke. It's just online. It's social media. It's not serious. You know. It's- well, I have a funny anecdote. So Carsey actually came to Tokyo uh, in in. When did he come to Tokyo? Well, he came in 2018 to do the Aoyama stream, but like actually like the day or a day or two before, I actually introduced him to Kamiya directly. 
And <laughs> I actually prefaced the meeting to Kamiya-san saying, oh, this is Karsi. By the way, you blocked him on Twitter. And he's like, <laughs> in English, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then, you know, they started talking after that. And then a little while after that, I, I like in a different meeting, way after I asked Kamiya-san, so you remember the guy you met last year at the event? And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. And I'm like, well, he'd love to do a stream of Resident Evil 2 with you. Are you interested? And he's like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. Like, Kamiya's like, I haven't played Resident Evil 2 in like 20 years, so this will be interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, Kamiya-san, for a guy of his pedigree, like he's totally mm -hmm. outgoing. And, you know, meeting, meeting him in real life is a lot more pleasant than talking to him on Twitter. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for people who aren't aware, he, he pretty much blocks everyone. If you ask a question that's already been asked before or say something that he doesn't like, basically. I would like be interested to see how long his block list is. <laughs> Another question I had, Alex, was have you been amazed by the response? The Resident Evil community, on the whole, is a great community. We're all very much, I like to think as a family, generally. We all love the games and, you know, we can pick it apart, but whatnot. Have you been amazed at how quickly funding happened for the book? And how do you feel about 150% funding is now? Yeah, I mean, I've been humbled, really. It takes a lot of trust in, in somebody that you might not know to, to, to give your hard-earned money to that person on something that might or might not happen, right? Or that, that might meet your expectations or might disappoint you. So that, that was ex extremely humbling to have such a positive response to the book. The, the publisher, you know, they're in their specific space of crowdfunding books. I guess they're well known, but it's not like they had the same visibility as Kickstarter. You know, I think if I Kickstarted the book, it might have been funded a lot faster, actually. But I found with Kickstarter, you, you lose a lot of the control that you have in the publication process. So that's why I ended up choosing Unbound as the publisher, because they, they had a complete process for publishing books that was still very much consistent with what, you know, the big publishers do. Right. With Kickstarter, you have to do everything on your own. So, yeah, so happy for the for the result. Uh, Unbound and I were a little worried initially because the funding target was extremely high. Uh, we don't publish the actual goal, but it, it, it's definitely a five digit British pound figure. So, oh. you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be a cheap project by any measure. And there were concerns that it might take six months to a year for it to get funded, but it took maybe about two months. I, I guess, you know, timing helped because RE3 got announced, you know, not too long after. Intuit obviously being such a success as well, yeah. And then I, mean, I think the, the biggest contributions came from the community. You know, all of you who pushed the book and, and encouraged your friends and other fans to back it. Carsey was very supportive. The Spear Hunter, Susie, was extremely supportive. And I think her push was indispensable in getting us across the goal toward the end. I mean, I think the book got funded like two days before Christmas, maybe. So it's a nice Christmas present. It was great timing. And, you know, COVID-19 hadn't become a thing yet. So <laughs> I have a feeling that if it had happened a bit earlier, that might have affected people negatively. So like you said, just the right person at the right time. We're looking at April 2021 for expected release. Yes. I mean, I finished writing the book. I mean, I, I think like 99% of the edits are done. Uh, I mean, like I think the, the biggest point of contention in the editing process was whether we use US dates or European date format. <laughs> so I know everybody here... <laughs> what you going with? American. No, no. Uh, <laughs> And the reason, the reason for this is I think it's important that the book maintains the author's American identity. Fair, Fair enough. enough. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. no offense, but, but European dates are useless when you actually have to work with them. So 
You can't sort what? things in European date format. Like January 31st would be listed after February 1st, right? That's just crazy to me. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kidding a little bit, but yeah, that, that was like <laughs> the, basically the point is I don't anticipate a delay unless COVID-19 blows everybody up or something. And <laughs> Alex, I'm going to ask you a question going back a little bit more, but just how you got interested in Japanese and how you ended up in Japan because I know a bit about this, but obviously people listening to this don't. And I think it's part of the story about you, how you're even working in the industry as you are and the connections you've made and how you've ended up writing this book are all that kind of happenstance of that. Do you want to explain kind of your interest at the start of the series and how you end up in Japan? Because I think that's interesting in itself. Ooh, where do I start? Um, it's, a, it's a big question, I know. <laughs> so I, I'm from San Francisco, so I'm in the U.S. For those who may not know, San Francisco is probably one of the most diverse parts of America, and there are people from everywhere. But there's a particularly visible Asian community, including Japanese people, including my own background as well, uh, people from the Philippines. So, you know, I had had interactions with other Japanese kids when I was growing up. Uh, my mother, actually, uh, before she moved to the United States, she actually had a Japanese friend who introduced her to Japanese food. And so she's been eating Japanese food since the 70s, and it's always been her favorite. So as a kid, my parents took me to Japanese restaurants maybe three times a week. So, you know, like on that level, I, I had a lot of interactions with Japanese people, but not, not enough to learn the language or, or even visit Japan. Because in the 90s, Japan was still kind of an exotic place for, for the average American, you know, and flights, you know, were very expensive. It wasn't until I started getting into gaming more you know, starting with the Super Nintendo, where I started to develop that awareness that most of my favorite games had come from Japan. So anything from Nintendo, pretty much, except for Donkey Kong Country, came from Japan. The N64 then came out, the PlayStation then came out. Uh, I started playing Pokemon. That was another big Japanese game. Anime started becoming a lot more uh, prominent in the late 90s. And so then the Dreamcast came out. And then I played a game called Shenmue. And that game takes place in Japan with a Japanese cast. And after I beat Shenmue, that's when I knew I had to, at some point, visit Japan. Because the internet started to become a thing as well. And I realized all my favorite games were from Japan. So when I was a teenager, I really wanted to visit. And then, you know, I played Silent Hill. And then that introduced me to survival horror. Then I played Resident Evil Code Veronica. And then the rest of the Resident Evil games. So by the time I was in high school... Like the, the, the number one thing that I had wanted for so long was to visit Japan. So finally, in 2004, the year I turned uh, 17, my mom actually brought me to Japan, to Tokyo for the first time during summer vacation. And I absolutely loved it. I, I got to visit Kihabara, which was the big gaming shopping area of Tokyo. And I got to experience so much on that first trip. And I noticed on that trip that communicating with Japanese people was very hard because not everybody knows English. And, and it could be a very intimidating experience for both, you know, visitors and for Japanese people if you can't really communicate. So after, after that first trip, I had committed myself to studying Japanese. I think in university, that would have been the easiest way to do it because high schools in the U.S. don't usually offer Japanese. So I graduated high school in 2005, entered university, majored in Japanese, and then I got into the study abroad program for, for a university here in Tokyo. So in 2007, I came here originally for a year. I became fluent in Japanese during that one year. And then I had to come back to the U.S. for a few months. But I actually ended up moving back to Japan in March 2009, where I've been ever since. 
I, I decided to come back to Japan for graduate school, actually, because the, the financial crisis had happened in late 2008. Mm. So the job market wasn't that great. So I decided to stay in school a little bit longer uh, and spend that time becoming more fluent in Japanese. And then by the time I finished my graduate program in 2011, I got my first job in the game industry. And that's where I've been ever since. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, that's it's, a crazy story. You, you mentioned Shimu, Alex, and in terms of maybe your kind of your gateway into really starting to, I mean, obviously you mentioned about the Chinese restaurants and things, but really kind of connecting and, and the Japanese culture resonating with you. Because I, I tried to play that. And I remember because Stars, Stars Tyrant is a, is, is a big proponent of that game. And mm-hmm. I remember finding the opening a little bit slow. And I think from conversations with Stars, I think Stars, you were mentioning that it's very much steep, that game, isn't it, in sort of mm. Japanese culture. And, and you've really got to kind of connect with that and, and to appreciate that, to, 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 I think, fully appreciate the, you know, the start of that yeah. game at a slow pace. Yeah, it's not a game for everybody by any stretch, but I liked it personally. And I guess I just really liked the characters and the music and the environment. And, you know, I was 13 when I played Shenmue, so it's not like I had terribly high expectations of how a sandbox game needed to play, right? <laughs> so, and yeah. again, it was a hit of the curve on some, in some areas, your QTEs and the open world right. environment and, and the, at that time was quite unique. The graphics were phenomenal when it came out. For the, yeah, for the time, definitely. And, you know, I felt like I was playing a game with a lot of depth to it. I mean, I think I actually played Code Veronica before Shenmue, so maybe I told the story out of order. So I was late to the Resident Evil party, as the username <laughs> might, might uh, indicate, but I, I had gotten into it in 2000. So four years after the series first came out, like, I was not around for it in the PlayStation era. So I played... Code Veronica first and then went backwards from there. And I actually, like I said, I played Silent Hill, the first Silent Hill, before I played any Resident Evil game. So if it weren't for Silent Hill being such a profound game that sucked me in, I don't think I would have tried Resident Evil until maybe a lot later. I mean, I imagine if I hadn't played Resident Evil, like the earlier ones, I might have gotten into RE4 at some point, but probably not enough to you know, become who I am today. Can I just ask, um, Alex, when you started off thinking about the structure of this book and say, you know, the, the chapters, and I just wondered, did you sort of set yourself a challenge to try and contact, you know, the developers of, of all the main games and, and try to establish a connection and that level of, of interview throughout all the games? And and if you did try to set yourself that challenge, I was curious if along that road, if you ever got to contact some of the, the creative team behind Resident Evil Dead Aim. I know Shugimura was one of the writers, but but some of the other names I don't recognize. Yeah, the, the goal was to reach out to as many people as, as I could. Unfortunately, for the gun survivors and the dead aims of the series, it was much harder to, actually impossible to reach the people who were directly involved. If yeah. Sugimura-san were still alive, you know, that would have been probably all I needed in a lot of ways. But unfortunately, he wasn't. And the like the problem with the first gun survivor is that it was developed by Tosei. And, and at the time they rarely ever put their actual names in the uh the credits. And they don't usually cooperate with interviews regarding games that they didn't publish. So you know, that was kind of a dead end. And then all of the gun survivors were spearheaded or produced by uh, Tatsuya Minami, who most recently produced the RE3 remake uh, at M2. And you know, I'm not gonna get into detail. But approaching him for an interview when I was writing the book, it was an extremely sensitive issue uh, and one that I wasn't willing to 
to tread on. So fortunately, I don't have as many anecdotes about Gun Survivor or Gun Survivor 2 or Dead Aim, unfortunately. But I think I think without break, I, I, I did an okay job. <laughs> so... Final question from me. One of the many benefits of living in Japan is you get to do all the cool experiences that none of us get to do around the world. So I just wondered, which ones have you done? And tell us why the voice of Gaia is the most important (laughs) extract. (laughs) Well, there have been a lot over the years. I mean, obviously, every year, almost every year, Resident Evil's been at Tokyo Game Show. And they usually have a really nice fan booth, you know, that's decorated after whatever game they happen to be showing that year. So those are always really nice. Have you done like the real and gone to see the stage shows? So there was Halloween Horror Night 2012. That was a really good that was a really good one where Universal Studios Japan decked out their entire the entire New York section with Raccoon City decorations and like costumes of zombies and characters and whatnot. That was really cool. And then they've always had like the biohazard, the real real, real two and real three. Yes. They've had two escape games as well. The reels are just like linear haunted houses where you're just walking through a narrow hallway and, you know, these zombies or these monsters pop out from the walls. You know, you're not supposed to touch them and they're not supposed to touch you, but it's supposed to scare you. Go through those uh, and then you escape. The escape games are a lot more elaborate. Like there's a time limit of like 30 minutes and, you know, you got to know all the clues or else you won't be able to escape. I've done that uh, a few times at Universal Studios as well. The movies always come out in movie theaters here. So all the CG films have been in movie theaters and I've seen them all. At a restaurant at one stage? Is that my... Yes. So a few years ago, there was the the Biohazard Cafe in Shibuya. It was like an American restaurant. Like they served steak and burgers and, and salads. And it was Kill really sandwiches. bizarre. It was, they weren't Jill sandwiches, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but... The, the, the Biohazard Cafe was a lot like Hooters. I think we all know that. <laughs> so you're eating, you're eating unhealthy American food, and then like during your time there, like these these girls in bikinis get up on stage and start dancing. Um, I I thought it was extremely peculiar that the waitresses at the Biohazard Cafe would dance to um, the Spice Girls for some random reason. <laughs> Well, there's the takeaway from this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else has there been? Biohazard, the stage, that was a thing? Yes, how was... Did, did you go see that? Because, I mean, we love it on the podcast. We, we've seen it on uh, YouTube mm. when it was on there. I think watching it in the mindset of going to theatre, like Broadway, not it's not Broadway, but I have this dignified image of performance art, right? And going there, you have to dress really nicely and you have to, you know, be quiet and watch the show. So in that sense, the stage was very disappointing. Like the stage to me is something that I, I want to be inebriated when I'm watching it. Really? That's <laughs> interesting. That's so I interesting. I don't know if, that, if I'm going off on a tangent, but I didn't like the stage. I didn't like the musical as much. I was um, going to ask, yeah, well, musical. the voice of Gaia is, is, uh, is hilarious. Oh my God, that was the most non- nonsensical thing i had ever seen <laughs> is that when they sing at the zombies to to to, to kind of relax them yes into... you, have oh, to, you have to calm the bow down with a specific song um i guess i guess dark side chronicles did that but when you make an entire musical out of it and going back to what you were saying before like the differences between what we're looking at resident evil the western the, and the, you know the asian market how was that received in japan specifically amongst resident evil fans if, if you know kind of on the ground as I you mean... kind of perceived it I mean, it's cool, I guess. Although the, oh man, the musical was weird. 
to go to because I went with a friend of mine. We were the only guys in there, and everybody else were middle-aged women. Okay. I have a, Is that because to do with the actors involved? I have a feeling they came to see the actors rather than the actual biohazard itself. I mean, that was the opening night, so maybe that kind of skewed things a bit. Bio were they all, like, screaming and throwing underwear onto the stage? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. I have a distinct feeling the average Japanese biohazard fan is not a huge theater goer. Right? No. no. They, they, they might see Wicked or Hamilton, maybe, or what a, a Disney musical. I don't know if biohazard appeals to the average fan. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. I'm trying to think, was there something else that happened? Well, there's the follow-up stage show, The Experience, but then there's also been a couple of VR experiences recently, Valiant Raid and mm -hmm. Walk Through the Fear. Yes, I've done Valiant Raid twice. I haven't actually done Walk Through the Fear because of COVID, actually. I'm not sure if I'm interested in staying in a small enclosed room, mm. you know, for a half hour. But those are still ongoing. Valiant Raid was whatever. I mean, it's it's basically RE2 remake in VR, and you just shoot things all day, and it wasn't terribly interesting. I'm forgetting one, but I can't recall what it was. It, it was the year, it was like the year of the 20th anniversary. It was the it was the world premiere of Resident Evil the Final Chapter. Uh, I, got to, I got to see it like a week before it came out in Japanese theaters, and I got to see Mila Jovovich and Paul Anderson in person. <laughs> oh, so I've seen the photos from that event. Yeah, they had it decked out like was, it was that white hallway. Yeah, yeah. Movie was terrible though. So <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. This is an interesting leading question for Alex. Do the movies come up at all in the book? Because obviously they are a big part of the Resident Evil um, culture. Somewhat, but not too often. I, I don't even think I mentioned the first movie. I mentioned the second movie because it's modeled after RE3. But I, I deliberately left those off because the Capcom creative staff had very little to do with anything that happened in those movies. I was going to say, was only uh, Okamoto that uh, uh, had anything to do with any of the production as well. I think he actually was involved with the first film, I think, and that's literally it. I think with Resident Evil, they just license out the property and let the screenwriters run with it. You know, it's not like they were checking in and saying, okay, you have to change this line because it's terrible. I don't think they really did that. I think they probably just made sure the movie was on brand enough. From Anderson's own admission, he said that when he went to Japan and met with them, they suggested the liquor for the end of the first movie. That's the only thing I know Capcom contributed directly to any of the films. Yeah, I, they gave them ideas about what to do, but I don't think they directed any of the creative content in the way we understand it usually in the filmmaking process. I guess an aside to that, did you ask anyone who was involved with, obviously George A. Romero did the commercial for Resident Evil 2 or for Biohazard 2 anyway because it came out in Japan. Did, did anyone have any discussion about that? Did you did you ask or did you not end up having a conversation I, about that? I, I talked to Kamiya-san a little bit about it at one point because I think the actor for Leon passed away. Brad Renfro, um, yeah. Yeah, in terms of how it was made, not really. But I mean, they did like the commercial. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much all I can say, I guess. So it's a good outcome. And it was successful. I mean, it was a very expensive production from, for Capcom to bankroll at the time, as I recall. So to them, I think it was a marketing boon to have such a huge zombie-related name attached. So I don't know if it was expensive to do that commercial specifically, but probably did have an effect on how well it sold. I think I had a report from the time that said it was the most Capcom had ever spent on a marketing budget for a game up until that point. Yeah, relative to the time <laughs> frame, absolutely. Because games games were becoming more and more commercialized by the end of the 90s mm. with the PlayStation era. So I, I think whether they went with George Romero or not, that was probably inevitable. Yeah, I'd agree with that. To me, it was always such an interesting thing that they ended up only using the marketing campaign really in Japan after all that as well because of the contract requirements with 
with Brad Renfro, they couldn't release it in the US. It's so so crazy to think mm. that they had this name that American audiences may have attached themselves to and they didn't end up using it. But I was going to yeah. ask, where's Capcom's stance on this book and how how it's perceived? Have they? They've obviously not made it official, but they're aware of it and they're they're okay. Is that something you can talk about? I was just going to ask as well, Alex. Was there anything off limits that that they were absolutely not happy with you to go down any avenues or anything? I mean, I can't get into too much detail, but to to, to answer the question, yes, I have sorted everything out with them, and it'll be fine. I just have to be very deliberate and careful about how I explain this book to people. And that it's not it's not their work. It's all my opinion. There might be inaccuracies as far as they're concerned. So, you know, it, it's an independent work and I prefer it to be that way. Were there things Capcom was not happy with me talking about? I mean, I think officially they can't really sanction something like this to begin with. As long as there's no slander in the book, right? Or, or, or deliberate, obvious and harmful misrepresentation of any person or anything, you know, that involves them, then it should be fine. I mean, you know, when you're when you're reporting on people's opinions or when you're when you're quoting things that people have said out of their own free will and they've given you the okay to to release those publicly, then there's really not much anybody can do. I mean, I don't want to yeah, take I... advantage of any loopholes to do this. Um, I think uh, it's best that I did this with Capcom's okay. So I'm, I'm very sure, glad that I sure. have that. I guess the other follow-up to that is, is it a surprise to you in some respects that, that nobody, like you've talked about obviously the bilingual thing and you being that person who's there and just knowing that you're aware of, but is it kind of a surprise that Capcom hasn't considered doing a book like this themselves for the 20th or 25th anniversary? Do you think that's a surprise that they've something they could have released internationally for the, for the audience for one of the anniversaries? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if somebody at Capcom wanted to write a book just like this one, they'd probably do an even better job for, for, for various reasons. But, you know, the company is always very careful about the brand image and it's, it's a commercialized property. So their priority has always been how to sell the Resident Evil brand to people and make it look as appealing as possible. And, you know, they will do things like making of videos and interviews that discuss the creative process. But I do think they have very little to gain from actually writing a book like this themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, it's extremely specific pieces of information, right? I don't think the average Resident Evil fan really would be interested in a book like this. People like us, absolutely. Right, people who who take time out of their day to discuss Resident Evil on Discord and on Twitter, absolutely, I'm pretty sure they'll be interested in something like this. But the average person who buys a Resident Evil game once a year when it comes out, I don't know. Those are the people whom Capcom are more interested in reaching out to. Alex, I want to say a huge thank you for for the interview. Does anyone have any final questions they want to put before? We head into some even more dangerous territory. Well, obviously, the book covers the first uh, 12 years of Resident Evil, Alec. It's all been funded. You say you're 99% of the way through the edit. Are you going to be doing a follow-up? I would love to. There are a few challenges, though. One, I would want to end the second volume with the release of RE7, because it's just kind of a nice cutoff point. The problem is... Most of the people of interest are still at Capcom and Capcom is very specific about the types of interviews that they grant. And unless a bunch of people retired in the next few months, I probably wouldn't get interviews of the same depth as I did with the mm -hmm. first volume. Also, I think with that era of, of development, 
uh, video game, like, you know, the video game industry in general has become more transparent and more people have become involved. And a lot of the, the things that we're able to talk about from 2005 onward are probably more common knowledge to people, to either through other books or through GDCs or other interviews or whatnot, documentaries. So I would love to write a second volume about a lot of the things that transpired between RE4 and RE7, but the book would probably have a very different tone to it. It's a case of never say never, but not anytime soon. Yes. I mean, there's. I think the most interesting piece of history in this in this second era of Resident Evil really is that period between RE6 and RE7, right? Mm. But, you know, Capcom has been kind of forthcoming about that, you know, more than they would have been in previous years. You know, how RE6 didn't, you know, do what they needed it to do and RE7 kind of brought it back. So, I mean, the, the, the second volume, it may never come out, to be honest. At worst, it won't come out, or at best, it won't come out anytime soon. We'll, we'll see, especially in, in terms of how the first book does. I mean, to be honest, you know, if, if the number of people who bought the book stopped at the funding level it's at now, it probably wouldn't be financially viable to do a second book. But if this book, once it's published properly, hits it out of the park and there's more demand for it, then, you know, I might be able to look into ways of coming out with a follow-up. Well, there you go. That's the call to arms to the Resident Evil community by multiple copies. And let, let's get a second volume published. So thank you again, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure. But stay around because now we enter the twilight zone of the podcast as we play this podcast edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. For the past eight years and five seasons... We have brought you groundbreaking lore, in-depth analysis, game reviews, and high-quality content. We've also brought you untold controversies and countless tales of underhand tactics, all in aid of the quiz. Uh, I just like to announce everybody that uh, this is zero points for me this week. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. So my nomination person said seven, but I didn't agree with seven. I said it was seventeen, and then you said it was seventeen. I didn't want people to think I'm cheating by just saying the same number that someone else has said. So I just just the next number that sounds similar to seven seventeen. I swear I did not cheat, yo. <laughs> Quite frankly, if, if we only got one point and that's the winning score, then we're not doing our jobs right and we're all going to have to hand in our biohazard cards. <laughs> Welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Quiz. 
Welcome, everyone. This is a uh, short, sharp quiz this time, just the five questions. Alex, you've not played along before, so I ask five questions. You may want to write down the answers. You can use Microsoft Notepad. That's perfectly acceptable. No Google, no cheating. Uh, that's not directed to you, of course. George. <laughs> George. <laughs> Oh, Chris is a George either. Sean, thanks as well. Yeah, God, it was terrible, wasn't it? What a gaff! <laughs> I was just looking at my shelf, and I. Uh... So, if everyone can clear their notepads, here we go. Question number one: In Resident Evil Remake, what are the colours of the gemstones you find in your adventure? Question number two: What is the name of the anti-last plagas gun in Resident Evil Four? Bloody hell. Question number three. What is the name of the B.O.W. in Revelations 2 that can shoot fire-like projectiles? There's always one of these, Nick. Every time. Is this a veto Wait, one? fire! There's always... Well, Terrible do, names, always. Are you sure? I do like a good B.O.W. question. Wait, can now. I just clarify? You're saying that the projectiles that it fires are fire? It's out of like, like, like cannon, isn't it? Out of like a little hand cannon it's got. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, the, the, the oversized... Think mag-mortar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, think Magmortar from Pokemon. It's not that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good comparison. Question. Oh, it is a good comparison. It is. It is. Question number four. What item do you pick up in Lisa's cabin to trigger her appearance? And finally, question number five. According to Alyssa Ashcroft, how many people had been reported missing in South Louisiana and over what time period? So there are the five questions. Join us after this one. We'll run through those answers. Welcome to the Raccoon City Police Department. How can I help you? Hi, me again. I have another appointment with Chief Irons. Have to say, I love the refub you guys have done. Stairs in this hall? Very welcome after last time's quest through the back and beyond. So, same room, upstairs to the right? Yes, same room. Oh, the Chief Secretary is off sick. Attacked by a dog, apparently, whilst out hacking. Oh, sounds nasty. I know where to go after the waiting room, so can I just walk through? Um, yes, that shouldn't be a problem. You are going to need a brand new spade key, though. Oh, fuck the spade key. Yes, the door is locked. Clearly. Fine. Please, could you please provide me with the relevant key? I assume you have remedied the ridiculousness of last time and now have the key with you at the front desk? No. I'm afraid not. You are going to have to go and collect the spade key for yourself. Okay, where is it? So, a warning. Our electronics are a bit weird at the moment. And yes, uh, I can see that the shutter is down. Do you carry a knife with you? Have I brought a weapon into a police precinct? Have you? No, of course not. Okay. There should be a knife lying around in this hall. Use that. Cut away the gaffer tape and press the button on the wall and then go into the waiting room. Like before, keep on walking. All the way up along and up the stairs through the library? Actually, we are having a little bit of a clear out, so some of the corridors are blocked. But don't worry, we've made provisions for that. 
Okay. Get to the double doors in that corridor, which is our briefing room. In the corner, we've placed a large box that if you climb on, you can then squeeze through a hole in the wall and back into the corridor. Are you taking the piss? I have with me a large backpack with a brand new laptop in it. I'm not about to start climbing on a bloody box and through a hole in the wall. There must be another way. This is ridiculous. Again! Um, well... You see the other shutter over there? You could go that way and squeeze underneath. You will need a fuse and some bolt cutters. Oh, for fuck's sake. No, let's carry on the way I know. Right, through the hole and back in that corridor and up the stairs. Yes, but this time go to the third floor. Turn the corner and the spade key is on a little disc there. Why can't it be on a little disc here where it is needed? Madam. I am going to need you to calm down. I am only doing my job. Once you have the spade key, you will need to go down the stairs back to the first floor. Walk back the way you came and go through the west office. The west office? The main working room for the RPD officers? Yes. They won't even know you are there. Just wander through, no problem, and you will then be back here in the main hall. At last. And I then go up the stairs, into the secretary's room, and I use the spade key to get to the chief's room? Yep, easy peasy. Thank you for your help. But... there may be a problem. What? 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 The barrier to get to the chief's office is shut. For the love of God, why? Madam, please, this is just a way of old buildings. It really isn't. Listening, in the new corridor, go right and follow that corridor all the way to the end and exit out the main door. This will take you to the roof. The roof? Outside? There's a bloody hurricane blowing outside and you want me to go outside on the roof? Madam, please, this is important. You need to proceed quickly as soon as you exit the waiting room. That entire area is prone to kamikaze helicopter pilots. I am going to pretend I did not hear that. On the roof, you will see a metal ladder. Climb up that ladder. A wet ladder. I'm in heels, I have a laptop, and I have to ascend a ladder. Why isn't the chief's office just off in the main hall? I simply don't get it. At the top of the ladder, you are on the balcony. Go through the door and then simply take the stairs down a level and the chief's office is the first door on your left. This is just as ridiculous as it was before the refurb. I will be having words. Wait, if the shutter is down, how do I get back? Do you like parking lots? Oh, for the love of... Welcome back to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Let's see how everyone has done. So question number one was in Remake. What are the colours of the gemstones you find in your adventure? Let's start with George for this one. I almost thought I got this wrong because I think I misunderstood the question. Yellow, blue and red. Those ones, you're talking about the, for the tiger, the yellow and blue one, and then you've got the red one for the puzzle. Okay, that's your answer. Star Star. Uh, I got red, yellow, blue in that order. That was okay. Uh, <laughs> I had red, blue, yellow in that order. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm not actually looking for a specific order, but there we go. Um, <laughs> I know. Fine, Alex. <laughs> Alex, what was your what was your answer? Blue, 
Blue, yellow, red. I mean, the order is obviously up for <laughs> debate. <laughs> Points all round. Yes, yes. I had red, blue, yellow. If I had red, blue, and yellow order. It was. It was. It wasn't a trick question. Mm. But not everyone. Maybe everyone may forget that there's the yellow one. That's what. That's, that's where I was getting from. Anyway. So that's question one. Points all round. Good start, everyone. So question number two. Well, what is the name of the anti-last plagas gun in Resident Evil Four? Uh, possibly two answers here, depending on abbreviations. So, Alex, we'll start with you this time. Did you know this one? The Plaga removal laser, was it 42? Was like 42. Yeah. Okay. George Trevor? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I, I had forgotten that there was even such a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Rumby, did you have an idea on this one? I, I had PRL, which is the abbreviation Plaga removal laser. I remember it being four or something. I think it's three digits, not two, but I can't remember. <laughs> PRL four something. Okay. 418? Stars, I don't know. 418. Stars Tarrant? Um, I wrote it down as the acronym, and it's PRL 412, I think. 412. Stars Tarrant is bang on the money. Well done. A full <laughs> point. A full point to Stars Tarrant is the PRL 412. Um, I'm going to give half a point to uh, Rob, and I'm going to give half a point to Alex for guessing pretty much it all on point there question number three is what was the name of the bow in revelations 2 that can shoot fire like projectiles which i compared to mag mortis and uh, i appreciated someone getting that reference which is always nice um, george what was the name of this is a is a I'll give you a clue. Is this it's the one guy of the with the boss am i allowed to ask because i think i know it if it's the guy with the drum he, he bangs a drum and he he, he himself doesn't fire the the fire it comes out of his own weapon but if it's that guy it's the vulcan yes yeah uh, the, the vulcan the, the, the vulcan i was thinking i was getting mixed up with the guy that throws stuff at you that covers your face i thought you mistook that for the fire uh, stars tyrant what did you put for this one i had no idea i'm rubbish with the with, uh, bow names in more recent titles no i i, sh I share your pain i do uh, alex did you know this one i'll is accept the japanese vulcan? name not that, not that i know is it, it is it vulcan with a k okay that's fine well See, this is why, like, recent Resident Evil games suck when it comes to uh, enemy names. But anyway. Se yeah. Sex is the sex is the worst. Sex is the worst, hands down. Like, I know it's a language. Everyone keeps telling me, yeah, you, it's just a, you know, they've named them after this language. But there's just so Rask many similar variations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we, we all know Rascal Plangia. I think it's probably the only way. Yeah, got that one. But everything else. Lepatitsa uh, <laughs> with the tits. Baptista. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't show that to your daughter, Nick. Don't show that to your daughter either. <laughs> Who are we missing? Romby, you haven't given your answer. Uh, I had no idea. I was like, sure, and I was just like, the recent names, I couldn't remember. I, I could barely even remember the enemy, and then, like, no chance of remember. Is a point to George Trevor. Is the Vulcan blubber? So well done, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give half a point to Alex for getting half of it with the Vulcan <laughs> bit, which I think is good enough. So very well done. So question number four: What item do you pick up in Lisa's cabin to trigger her appearance? Does Tyrant? I couldn't remember. I have no idea. <laughs> it's just, it's just wow. I'm kicking myself. I really am, and I just I'm trying to recall it. And even I'm questioning. I, I'm, I'm just... alright with you, Sean. I even I'm questioning my memory of this. I've got this wrong because I thought this question is so easy. I can't. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but you you've played it quite recently, George. I haven't played the remake for years now. Oh um, wow! I tend to go back to the original I more just... than I do the remake have... these days. I have been repeatedly. <laughs> playing it <laughs> and repeatedly dying and shaming yeah um, yeah, I, yeah I, I, I i honestly don't know i i can't i just can't recall it i'm sorry rob i think it's a crank but which crank i'm not sure maybe 
maybe a square crank, crank but I'm not 100%. George, you're confident, so we'll save you to the end. Alex? Yeah, well, I was worried, though, that you were going to ask what the shape of the end is. It's 100% <laughs> the crank. Nope. Um, okay, we'll do you first. Uh, but I, yeah, it's, it's the crank, but I, I actually... And it's the first one that you use, you know, that, that then triggers that appalling FMV quality. But I don't actually know the shape of it. I, cause I think it's the second one, hexagonal and red. This is the crank that's green at the end of it. Definitely the crank. Couldn't Definitely the crank. Yeah, for the, for Alex, the first one. I believe it would be the square crank. Is the square crank? So points Yay! to to Evra. I'll give points to Evra there, Bar Bar Sean. Good thing I wrote Resident Evil guides back in the day. <laughs> you did. We didn't even talk about. We didn't even talk about that. I was going to mention that actually. Yeah, um, the first uh, the first time I obviously knew your name back in the day was from the huge GameFAQs guides that you used to write because it was such a great resource before like a lot of the fan sites took off. Forgetting like the files and things like that because I I put a timeline together myself back in the sort of two thousands and I in like your guides and whatnot were sort of instrumental in helping building that together and, and I know Rob you did some as well. Well I, Alex used to Alex used to let me host his guides on my website and, and to contact me with news a lot. Whenever there's something unique he used to always email me or, or message me about stuff that was going on so very much early Rob, in those early Rob, days of Rob, the You wrote the best guides though, for sure. Oh no, no, don't say that. They were terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. My, mine I, were I wrote awful. two parts. Mine were awful. Mine were written by a teenager and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> terrible jokes and terrible jokes in mine. Terrible jokes. The final question was according to Alicia Ashcroft, how many people have been reported missing in South Louisiana and over what period of time? I think this is gettable. So, uh, Rob, start with you. I have no recollection of what the number was. I think it's like three or six months, but I have no idea. My guess, seven in six months. Seven, six months. Okay. George Trevor? Um, I've absolutely no idea. Sorry. This is a Resident Evil 7 question, by the way. I know yeah, you're no, a, I know, a, I know, I know adverse to outbreak. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, no, 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 no you, you find that, it's cool, you find that, you know, that little thing from Alicia, and it's a lot more contextually uh, grounded than the book by, um, what's his name, the, the Abyss book, which is like ridiculously yes. out Live of context. O'Brien. That's the one, yeah. Although I know I think did someone say that he did say that, that he was actually going to go off to write a book. But anyway, no, I've got no idea. Sorry. Alex? I don't know, but I'm going to throw out a guess. I think it was like three months and eight people. Okay. Does turn? I, I had no idea, so I'm just going to go for a total guess of uh, six months and 42 people gone missing. No, I'm afraid there's it, no points to anyone. We're, no, we're nowhere near. It's 20 missing over a two-year period. Oh, two years. So wow. there we. That's the uh, that's the report from uh, Alyssa. So let's have a look at those final scores and what a quiz it's been. In last place, it stars Tyrant with two points. High scoring quiz this week. It is a high scoring quiz. Two's usually <laughs> enough. <laughs> so two, with last place two there, and uh, next is Rob with two and a half points. Congratulations. But this week, well, this podcast joint winners, George Trevor and CVX Freak, Alex, congratulations with a whopping three out of five. Well done, oh, wow. sirs. Thank congratulations, you. Congratulations, I don't Congratulations. I, I think what, since, um, and I'm, I hope we'll be welcome, welcoming him back soon, um, since uh, the Batman hasn't been on a, a couple of podcasts, I've noticed, sort of, I think they've got slightly easier, the questions. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe. There hasn't been any like timeline sort of date questions that I'm terrible at. That does conclude uh, this podcast edition of Biohazard Quiz. Join us next time when we'll have some more questions.
So there we go. There we go. What a what an amazing podcast. I'm hope hopefully all our listeners will agree. Um, that does finish our special with CVX Freak, aka Alex. Thank you so much for taking your time out to uh, come and speak with us. Um, if anyone wants to check him out on Twitter at CVX Freak, and he'll keep everyone up to date. I think your uh, t- uh, pinned tweet is all about the book anyway, so people can uh, follow the links there. And if you still want to support. Uh, that you can do and get your uh, get your name in the book thank you very much everyone this was fun yeah on that note i'll say coming up next we should be and we, we teased it earlier in, in earlier podcasts we should be doing the great canon debate podcast touch wood so that's going to be something quite interesting uh, i think we'll be looking into all the canon issues which we've briefly touched upon actually in this podcast as well about where remake two remake three possibly even resistance fits as well. So uh, hold on to your hats for that one. But on that note, I'd like to, again, thank, uh, extend my thanks to Alex for joining us. And it's a goodbye from me, Neptune. Goodbye from me, Star Siren. Goodbye from me, Rombi. Goodbye from me, George Trevor. And goodbye from me, CBX. My food's rising above the sky.